1: Welcome back to another episode of Mother May I Sleep With podcast. Today's episode is very exciting. This is the type of movie I have to say, honestly, we've never done anything like this movie before on this podcast. I had trouble understanding parts of it. It's called Full Exposure, colon, The Sex Tape Scandal. Uh, It's a great movie, and I'm so happy to have my former boss here, the editor-in-chief of Decider.com, Mark Graham. Hi.
2: Hi, Miles. How are you?
1: I'm so happy you're here. This is like a blast from the past. I feel like we've done a couple episodes sort of like this where I'm either reconnecting or having on someone that was honestly a part of a very formative time in my life. And I'm so happy that you're here. You randomly reached out to me because Shanice's I Love Your Smile came on the radio and... Back in the day at Defamer, I did this dumb bit where instead of Rick roll, I was Shanice rolling people. And I was so touched that you reached out and that you remembered that because not even I remembered that. And <laughs> I was like, you got to come on the pod. And I'm so glad you agreed. This is a huge undertaking. I'm almost a little bit nervous that you'll hate it. But thank you for being here.
2: Uh, no, thank you so much for inviting me. We first met... Uh, back in the defamer.com days, which uh, looking back here at my notes, uh, it was late 2007. Uh, so not to age, age either one of us here too much, but that was, oh my gosh, 13 years ago. That is insanity.
1: That is insanity. And also, I cannot believe <laughs> that I had that job so quickly out of college. Like I had really only been out of college for about a year at that point. And I gotta say, Grambo, when you joined the Defamer team, God, you were given a hard time. I feel bad. <laughs> because you were replacing Mark, the founder, the inventor of Defamer. And the staff was very, despite us never really meeting or talking to each other outside of work. Well, I guess you can say our whole life was work, kind of. Um, oh, absolutely there was like this weird bitterness about mark being replaced even though he was voluntarily leaving a website that he started very successfully and starting a tv situation so i uh you know i i know you don't need an apology but i gotta say dude we really put you through the ringer at first
2: <laughs> um well um no need to apologize and I don't think that you did that at all. Um that experience uh, of time I was living in New York working on a website that primarily op- operated on the West Coast, those were to your point um long days that was my entire life was my job and I loved making a great connection with you And with, um, Seth, who's a, who's at THR now. And we had Sue Van Ayersdale and Kyle Buchanan. We just had a great crew of people, um, all around. And of course, Mr. Lasanti, who is, um, one of the smartest and one of the best guys of all time. You're right. It was, it was a tricky gig. And, um, I, I think we did some good stuff during a relatively short period of time, but, um, Yeah. Great memories for the most part, I would say.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One Hondo. I mean, that job was the best training I feel like I could have had in terms of just being on all the time, like being aware. And I was the TV watcher, which looking back, (laughs) it's shocking to me that I had a job where my main gig was watching TV and making sure that I could anticipate viral moments. Like what a job.
2: Um, Yeah, one of the things that I loved the most about that job, um, which was about a year or so of of my life way, way, way back then, was just watching you blossom, honestly, Like When I started the gig, um, you were doing some great video work for us, but um, you sort of mustered up the courage not too long after I started to um, volunteer to do our to-dos, which started off as, as a print thing, but you transitioned it into a video thing. And I don't know, it was just really exciting watching someone uh, as smart, as creative, as just laugh out loud, hilarious is you really sort of, uh, take flight. And I don't know. It it was, it was fun to be on the ground floor of the mall's experience. I think in so many ways. And obviously here we are 13 years later and you're, you're still a superstar. And, um, I don't know. I'll just always cherish that time and getting to know you and getting to work with you for that, um, crazy, insane period of my life is, is definitely one of my highlights.
1: I am so touched that you just said that. I honestly, you never are living anyone else's experience. I would have assumed that I was like terrible to work with. So that's real that's really kind of you. I appreciate <laughs> that. That was a wild time. Um, but okay, I guess we should get into the movie and we'll have plenty of time to reminisce throughout this. Also, I want to say shout out Doug Reinhardt um because Oh yeah,
2: Skeet on I, Misha.
1: Skeet on Misha, the legendary Skeet on Misha. And I was bummed because I didn't have an Amanda Bynes movie for you. I know that she was your (laughs) celebrity And I'm glad that you can't buy stock in celebrities because I think that that probably wouldn't have gone the way you wanted. But listen, that was your crush. Doug had skied on... He was skied on Misha. So we love Misha Barton. And there are so many Lifetime movies with Misha Barton. There's even one with Dan Levy or Dan Levy, I guess you would say. Up on the Lifetime movie Club right now
2: yeah you sent you sent a couple of um excellent choices my way, but I'm really, really happy with um with where we landed and I don't want to step on your toes here, but I think you'll you'll probably introduce the uh the wonderful movie that we're going to be talking about here momentarily.
3: Of
1: course, of course. So this movie is called Full Exposure, The Sex Tape Scandal, as I told you. I like to work a lot off the IMDb page. It's where I spend a lot of time in this podcast because I just think the podcast is so great. But a summary that's here is a luxury call girl was killed and the policeman who investigates the case discovers some videotapes with pornographical contents, which the victim has recorded, obviously, in order to blackmail important personalities. And, yeah, that's one way to put it. I have to tell you, I was really shocked by the ending of this.
2: Uh, it was it was a twist on a twist on a twist. But even before we, – we, we can't jump ahead to the ending already, Molls. Come on. But I think the first thing that is interesting about this movie, um, which we watched on the Lifetime Movie Club – I will plug that here. Um, <laughs> on the Lifetime Movie Club, they list the date of this movie as 1998. However, IMDb lists it as 1989. Do you yeah, know, Miles? Because so I did the research. Do you know which one of those years this movie was actually produced?
1: 100% 1989. <laughs> you are correct. I, if I had to bet money in Vegas, for sure. Because that first of all, that's very, that's very on brand for Lifetime. What that <laughs> means is that they probably acquired the rights to start streaming it in 1998
2: or somebody just uh during their data entry did a a transposition error and just never bothered to correct it
1: speaking of 1989 i know you're (laughs) a fan as well can we talk about what's happening tonight
2: uh huge news on the 1989 front. Um by that we mean of course we're talking Taylor Swift. Um she announced earlier this morning that she's dropping a brand new album just what 4 to 5 months after um the last record came out Folklore. What, what's this one called? Evermore? Is that what it's called? Evermore. Yeah. And I Everclear? brought this
1: up Ever no, Evermore. Yeah, but I wish <laughs> so- I say this because I saw you. Well, first of all, I say it because I am like an insane woman that screams on the street corner about Taylor Swift at this point in my life. Um, but mostly because I saw you write a very sweet and favorable Twitter review of folklore this week.
2: Um, I am uh, quite a big Taylor Swift fan. Uh, I have uh, been following her career quite closely as we all have for um uh, at least the last decade and some change. And I don't know, um, as somebody who uh, really started getting into around the Speak Now era, I thought Red is one of my all-time favorite albums. 1989 was terrific. I felt like she had a little bit of a downslide there with with Reputation and Lover. But Folklore, when it came out, I mean, it's, it's clearly been the soundtrack of all of our quarantine times, for sure. And I, I just love watching her mature. I love seeing that she feels like she doesn't really have the pressure to do the big pop stadium stuff because obviously nobody's touring and and probably won't be i would guess until summer 2021 at the very earliest um i think that that really liberated her and sort of gave her the permission to write some more personal stripped down moodier kinds of things that um again would be Maybe tough to pull off if you are thinking like, oh my god, I'm going to tour the world in 90,000 seat stadiums on this record. Um, but yeah, there's this new record that's coming out at midnight tonight. Um, maybe we should just keep this going for the next couple of hours and do a live listen. What do you think?
1: I was thinking the same thing. No, <laughs> uh, so I have to tell you though, I really connected with folklore. I personally, I got into Taylor during Rep. That was like my era that i got really into and then i of course went back and listened to all the classics and how can you not know about taylor swift like she's just so out there in the zeitgeist like you can't go to a wedding or a cvs without hearing her music but um folklore was just unbelievable i think i even cried listening to it the first time i think one because it's just um anything i feel anything right now like every video i see (laughs) I either get irrationally mad or I weep just because even the simplest acts of kindness and humanity. But Folklore really, really did something for me. I'm a huge fan. I would love to see how it plays out in terms of a tour because I think that her fandom really grew with her on this record. But you saying that you think in... Uh, summer 2021 that we might be able to go to concerts. It got me going on a wild mental path where I was thinking, <laughs> God, you know, I mean, what's going to have to happen in order for that to be possible. And then I was thinking, well, most of us are probably going to get the vaccine, right?
4: Sure. Uh, and-
1: Hopefully we'll be locked in our house. Our government will properly lock us in our homes, which I can't believe I'm excited for, but I'm, I miss my friends. I've only seen Ed twice this whole time. My Ed. Oh no. Oh no. Ed. So um, I I spend most of my time with other humans is with my elderly neighbors down the street um, and <laughs> just <made laughs> really good friends during this time. But yeah, like, what are they going to give us cards that that we show to say we're vaccinated? Like, what about the anti-vaxxers that are going to be roaming free until they're contained or we're separated? I don't know how that's going to happen.
2: Uh, what's Jenny McCarthy going to do when Donnie wants to go on tour with the new kids? Is she going to take it so she can get to see him on tour or or not? I don't know. That's one of the great questions of 2021 that we'll all find out the answer here too soon enough, hopefully.
1: For Donnie, Jenny would definitely get a vaccine. And I will say, <laughs> I, don't, I say nothing to her credit because I, you know, she's just she created a whole mess. And I think that might have even been when we were working together or definitely still, at least when I was writing gossip because that was a whole thing I had to cover but she um, she might have walked back a little bit on that I think
2: well, well that's promising to hear um, I hope that um, uh, yeah I just hope this uh, whole crazy Corona COVID vaccine thing I, I hope it rolls out in a good way in a smart way it seems like it might even be rolling out here in the next couple of weeks at least with some of like the first the first line of defense, of healthcare workers and things like that. And, you know, it's probably at least going to be, I would guess, just thinking logistics alone, at least six months and some change until most of a good chance of us even have a chance to get to it. So but I miss concerts so much. And oh, uh, one of the things yeah. I just really loved was, you know, with this folklore project, the the little Disney Plus documentary that she came out with, I don't know, it got me really emotional too, Miles. I'll be totally honest. Um, I think she's just a tremendous talent. Watching her perform those songs there in the little studio with that dude from the National and Jack Bleacher's was uh was special like i don't know watching her do like my tears ricochet or mirror ball i don't know I, I i definitely got for clempton um she's the best and i can't wait to see her do this uh in hopefully a small intimate theater at some point where she just does her really stripped down stuff maybe like springsteen on broadway style um i, I i'm i'm all for it i can't wait
1: speaking of broadway i know her musical is coming like there's for sure going to be a taylor swift musical
2: Um, a jukebox musical kind of a thing absolutely but probably not for another 10-15 years I would guess or who knows
1: I would watch it tomorrow I still haven't seen the Disney Plus thing. I think maybe tonight before I stream the album, I'm going to be the scumbag that I am because I canceled my Disney Plus. It's a children's app. I had no use for it in my life. And then, of course, this comes out. So like a scumbag, I have my friend who is only 25 years old. I have her parents' Disney Plus login. <laughs> Can you believe that? I'm the type of person who would totally... Be like, oh, that person has someone else's Netflix account. Their life's a mess. Um, But (laughs) here I am sneaking into my friend's Cuban elderly parents' Disney Plus account. Um, Okay, so let's get into this movie because you picked it. So I feel like you might have some sort of um, feeling about one of these actors. Something tipped you off to pick this movie. What was it?
2: (sighs) it was not any of the actors per se that, that made me choose this out of the, I think that you sent me four or five options. I did a, a cursory scan to just sort of see what things are about, but I got to be honest. The thing that tipped me off to this um, was not the colon in the title, <laughs> as you mentioned right off the bat, but um, yeah, the, gotta se- get the, colon. the the sex tape scandal piece of it was the interesting thing to me. Um, again, shouting back to our, um, Our former, uh, where our lives collided for the first time here, um, going back to Defamer, uh, in the sort of era of like, let's say 2005-ish through 2009, 2010, sex tapes were all the rage. They were, there was, they were coming out seemingly, it felt like on a nearly weekly basis. It was just such a a, a focal point and a flashpoint of the whole gossip movement. Obviously, the Paris Hilton, uh, Pam Anderson, obviously is the the godmother of the sex tape for sure with her Tommy Lee thing from the, the 90s. But you know, when you think about like Paris and Kim Kardashian, that Kim K superstar one and. Um, you know, Colin Farrell had one at that crazy time. Um, Hulk Hogan obviously had one that, that destroyed the company that we both used to work for. Um, and there was one in particular that really flashing back to my Defamer days. I don't know if you recall this, Miles. Hopefully you've burned this from your brain. But um, when we were working together at Defamer, there was a mini me, Vern Troyer sex tape that came out. And it was. Either the high water mark or the very, very, very low water mark, sort of of the sex tape era that it was that it was even a thing that it was a thing that um, caught people's attention, and I don't know, it just sort of felt like it, it was it was an important moment in all of our lives. The mini me sex tape. What do you remember about the mini me sex tape?
1: Well, first of all, RIP Vern Troyer, but you know, I remember now that you mention it, I sort of had. I guess maybe a little trauma block on it, but I remember (laughs) you sent it to me and said like, you needed me to rip a few minutes of it, which was like, by the way, that was my job. It wasn't like weird that you sent me that. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I had to like, you know, I mean, what I really remember from it is thinking that she was very pretty and um, I was happy for him, I think. And then I also remember mostly just thinking like, what good can come from
2: this? Um, I'll tell you one specific good thing that came from it. So the timing of this sex tape was really interesting. So when we worked at Defamer slash Gawker, there were a lot of incentives built into our lives and our compensation around how much traffic something drove. And I remember we were coming up at the end of a quarter, everything was um, chunked out in these little three month patterns. Um, We were just running just short of getting a bonus for that particular quarter because we hadn't quite met our numbers. But lo and behold, like 12 hours before the end of the quarter, the mini mini sex tape came out. And it pushed us over the limit, so it all gave us a, a, a couple thousand bucks of extra money, um, and that is so dirty and disgusting to think about. But it always makes me laugh. Um, uh, you're, you're right. Rest in peace, Vern Troyer. And, and I do. I've got another mini-me memory that specifically involves you. <laughs> okay. You and I went together. <laughs> you and I um, covered oh. the MTV Movie Awards. Do you remember this?
1: Yes. Hmm.
2: We were of on the. We are on the goddamn red carpet with Mini-Me, and you interviewed him. He was riding like a little motorized scooter thing. Clearly, he was not doing super well health-wise, um, but he was still coasting off of, I don't know, maybe Goldmember was out around then or something like that. But I you
1: think sp- Surreal Life had come out at that point.
2: Oh, you, you, are, you, are, you are absolutely right. Um, But you interviewed Vern on the red carpet, or maybe it was a gold carpet, or maybe it was a black carpet. It definitely wasn't red because it was MTV and they were trying to do something crazy. Um, Sure. But that was a a very, very memorable day um, in my life. Uh, I was... I was living in New York, but I had come out to L.A. for that particular thing. And you and I met up at the Universal Studios and uh, worked the red carpet together. And uh, it was a memorable day in my life. And shout out to Mini-Me. Rest in peace, Vern. You were a great dude. Um, And your sex tape gave us a couple of thousand bucks. So that was nice.
1: And I will also say that I think we saw Paris Hilton there. And I think she just wasn't because we were sort of down the press line. I wouldn't say we were up there with like Access Hollywood, right?
2: No, we weren't. We we were way down the press line.
1: (laughs) And I know she, we wanted, she was someone that we hoped we could talk to, right? And she sort of went past us. But I will tell you that I have since met her. And this was not recently. It was maybe two years after Defamer. I met her and she is the nicest celebrity I've ever met. She is so fucking sweet. And um, I think I think that I had even maybe said, like, oh, Paris, you know, was a bitch or something. not I didn't say that, but like something to that effect. And she's the nicest celebrity ever. Um, That was a really crazy day. So, um, okay, one thing I will also say about this movie before we get into really the whole plot of it is that I'm like, oh, that girl, Valentine, who plays her friend is really pretty. Um, It's Vanessa Williams. Um, I also believed I discovered Kaylee Cuoco at one point on this podcast. I'm so bad with names and faces. So um yeah, I'll just I'll just say it up front. Vanessa Williams is in this movie. And um, of course I didn't recognize her at all. Uh
2: I I believe she's third build in this movie. And um, yeah, interesting period of time. I think this was right before. Her sort of pop stardom phase. Do you remember the Vanessa Williams pop stardom experience?
1: Of course. Yes.
2: Um, But yeah, she um, is very pretty. Although I would say um, uh, I'm certainly no expert in this, but I would say, even though she was a former Miss America, um, I would say she's the second prettiest person in this movie. Oh, really? Really? I believe, um, and we'll get into this more probably down the road here a little bit, but, um, Jennifer O'Neill, uh, who, um, was somebody I had completely forgotten about, but was also, um, a big time model in the, uh, late seventies and early eighties, um, is just a striking, striking woman. I mean, but Vanessa obviously is, is a stone cold stunner too. Don't get me wrong.
1: No, of course. And I did notice that Deborah was very beautiful in the last scene. I was like, oh, she has striking eyes. She's really pretty. Um, Lisa Hartman, do you have any relationship with her as an actress?
2: Um, a, a little bit. You know, um, it, it was funny. So when uh, I was picking out the this movie of the ones you selected, I was like, Lisa Hartman, who exactly is that? And then when I hit play on it, of course I recognized her. You know, she was kind of... Um, She was a little bit before my time. So I'm, I'm 46. Um, I'm not totally sure how old you are, Miles, and I won't ask here on the podcast because that's rude. And a gentleman never does anything like that. But so I I grew up, um, uh, you know, my sort of formative early TV experiences were late seventies, early eighties, and she was definitely a thing. I remember her from. Shows like The Love Boat and Fantasy Island when I was a little kid, that, you know, occasionally my parents would be up and I would like sneak downstairs or like need a glass of milk and I would see her and I would be like, oh, that's Lisa Hartman. Then, of course, she was um, sort of a really big time primetime soap star there for a couple of years. She was on the show called Knot's Landing, which I've never. I'm not sure I've ever seen an entire episode of. It was just one of those things that I think maybe maybe it was on CBS. Do you know what network it was on by any chance?
1: I don't, but it was definitely like a main network sitcom.
2: Oh, for sure. It was like a big time kind of dramatic show in that era where um, shows like Dallas and Dynasty and like rich people doing naughty things. Um, really sort of dominated the airwaves. And so Lisa Hartman was like a big time TV star in the early to mid 80s. Again, she sort of got her start in this like little guest zone of Love Boat, Fantasy Island, kind of kind of crappy, but popular shows like that. Knot's Landing happened. But then, but then she stopped happening for some reason. It was also back in those days, though, when if you were a TV actress, there was... Literally zero chance you were ever going to be a movie actress. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Or yeah. No. For sure. it was a total separation back then.
2: Yeah, there was there was no crossing over. Um, you know, like Tom Selleck, who was a huge TV star at the time, Mister Magnum PI. He tried to cross over the movies. It failed miserably. There was just Hollywood stars were glamorous and unattainable and unapproachable and mysterious and tv people were people that you would see all the time and those worlds never crossed back in those days so once knots landing got canceled i think around 86 or so um uh uh miss hartman's career sort of uh uh took a little bit of a nosedive after that what what what's your what's your take on her
1: well not to you know tie this back to jenny mccarthy too tightly but she was <laughs> just killed as the lady snow owl on the mass singer
2: I just saw that. So I, um, when I was doing my IMDB research, uh, for this, uh, the mass Singer was Lisa Hartman's first credit since 2012.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have no relationship with this actress. I really don't. I, I can't say I've never seen her before, but I, there's nothing on her resume that I'm super familiar with. When I was growing up, those shows were probably in reruns, but not on the stations at my house. So I've never I've never seen her really in anything before this today. Um, Tony Dennison, any thoughts about him?
2: Um I have all of the thoughts on this guy.
1: <laughs> well, so get into I, the episode if you want.
2: Um it, sure, we can get into in the episode, but but sort of one of the things that I sort of found interesting about him, again, doing um doing the research here. This is clearly Probably a guy that nobody knows um what he looks like by his name, Tony Dennison, but you would if you've watched T V at any point over the last thirty years, you would absolutely recognize this dude. Yeah, he's,
1: he's also handsome. He's very handsome.
2: I was gonna ask you about that. So you think he's handsome. I was I was trying to discern his level of uh sex appeal throughout the course of this movie. He's he's a handsome dude to you, you would say.
1: Well, I kind of think like most people are kind of unattractive. And in these movies, they always bring in these guys that, like, I know intellectually I'm supposed to think are hot, but I kind of really don't get it. So it's always a little bit of like, I'm not a fun girl in that way. You know, I'm not one that's like swooning over some shirtless man. I actually think it's like kind of sad. So. Um, I, when I find these guys like semi-attractive, I definitely take note of it. I would, I would categorize him as like, oh, he's not bad for a lifetime movie.
2: Um, I, I, I would agree. Um, he's definitely not the, uh, most handsome man that I've ever seen in my life. Um, but you know, I don't know. He's, he's a, he's a solid, consistent worker. He did a seven year stretch on the closer that uh, Kira Edwards show. He's been on something called Major Crimes. Is that a CBS show? Must be? Um, I think so, He did six yeah. years on that show. He played both Joey Buttafuoco and John Gotti. This guy is, uh, has got New York roots. I think he was born in Harlem. Um, and something that was fascinating to me, Miles, in your knowledge of um, Hollywood and actors and how people change and reposition their names is a lot better than mine. But so... Uh, Tony Dennison, which is how we sort of know him now, he began his career under his real name, which is Anthony Serrano. And after one movie, he changed it to A.J. Denison. Then after two more credits, he started going by Anthony Dennison. But then he transitioned into Anthony James Dennison from 1989 until 1997. And in 1997, he landed on Melrose Place – And that's when he changed his name to Tony Denison, which he's been for ever since 97. So he went through six different name changes over the course of his career. Has anybody ever done anything like that?
1: You know, there are a lot of credited as, I see that a lot, where there's an actress that's maybe, you know, finally starting to get her stride. And then I see that she was credited as something different. In her first like three movies, um, whether there be like an added initial or a nickname or something. But I always feel bad when the- I see that because, you know, not everyone is born with a world class name like you and I.
2: <laughs> well, um, Mark Graham is an impossible name to top, as is Molly McAleer. The, um, you've got one of the great names of all time. But I, of course, I've seen people, you know, like add a middle initial here or there. Usually it's like sag related. You know, there's, there's two people with the same name. Like that's why I say Michael J. Fox is Michael J. Fox. Um, but I've never seen anybody change their name as many times as this dude did, um, throughout the course of his career. It's it's especially, just it's just sort of boggles the mind.
1: Yeah, especially when he had bigger credits. That's like a major continuity issue at a certain point. A publicist would advise a, a, against that.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. clearly his publicist uh, was working overtime to keep his, uh, whoever his agents were, whatever agency he was with, um, need to remember. Oh no, y- you mean Tony Denison, not Anthony James Denison.
1: <laughs> right, right. Oh God, yeah, that is interesting. I might look into that. I might sign up for IMDb Pro B- B- to find out maybe if there's a little backstory on that. But let's get into um, the I, movie.
2: I know you I know you like sharing logins. I, I can share you. I can share my IMDb login with you. No big deal.
1: Oh really? That would be huge. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy
2: to do it. I I know you're, you're borrowing your Cuban neighbor's Disney Plus. You can borrow my IMDb Pro. It's all good.
1: God, I've turned into such a scumbag overnight. Um, <laughs> how is IMDb Pro, by the way? How much is it? Yeah.
2: I, th- I I'm not totally sure it's it's a business expense, so my company pays for it. I think it's like 80 bucks a year or something like that.:
1: Yeah, I figured it was a big ticket item because I remember thinking like that was so luxurious to have IMDB Pro when I was first starting out.:
2: Oh, for sure, I, I definitely could not afford it until very, very recently. I would never pay for that out of my own pocket, but um, we use it at work here and there uh, from occasion to occasion. so it was nice to be able to look up all this stuff on on that great service.
1: For sure. Maybe the Um,
2: the conference is up. Who knows?
1: Oh, God, I hope. Um, Well, okay, so (laughs) let's get into the movie. So we open up on a, what I would call a neon sex dungeon. There's some serious pink mood lighting. We see a woman getting ready in some sort of mask. She's got her, I don't know what that's called, when it's like leather strings attached to a leather stick. What is that called in bondage?
2: Um I'm a little out of my depth uh in terms of my bondage vocab but um I'm not sure it's maybe some tassely kinds of things I don't know.
1: Yeah, like one of those tassely things, you know, you've seen 50 shades <laughs> of grey. So of we see the businessman leave the side of the building. So the deed is over, right? He's out of there. And we see her sort of, like, taking off her bondage stuff. Her work is done for the day. She enters into some sort of back room and puts on a sweatsuit. We see she's just a normal girl. She likes to wear a sweatsuit. She just does this for a living. And then she sneaks over to this little side room where she's, she's filming it. She's got this whole thing on tape. Apparently, she tapes all of these men. And she brings the tape over to a safe. But before she can close the safe, her kitty's hungry. So she's got to feed this cat Daisy, right? What she doesn't realize is that there is someone spooky in the room, someone in all black, a figure. They've got a gun. They're clearly not afraid to use it. They're there to get something out of her. And when she puts Daisy's food down, Daisy's not eating. Daisy runs across the room. So she goes to follow the cat as you do. You become very subservient when you have these sort of animals, right? and there's the person, right? So she starts to reason with them. She's like, "Listen, I'll I'll cut you in on the deal. Just please give it, you know, give it another thought." But boom, she's dead. She winds up dead.
2: Um, you know what? I'm going to jump in here for one quick second because all of your observations are spot on, but one of the things that I really picked up from this early opening scene, which frankly is pretty good in the... If you're considering the scope of Lifetime movies, the way this opening scene is shot, lit, and also scored, it's kind of got like a little... um It's kind of like Michael Mann's Manhunter um, mixed with Miami Vice. The score is like kind of propulsive synthy music. It reminds me a lot of... It sounds like if someone did sort of the pump audio version of In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. You know, oh. like pulsating synths some like wailing kind of like light guitar stuff in the background. Like someone's working out sort of a killer solo, but maybe they're in the next room from the studio. They're not like the lead musician there. And Mm -hmm. it, it looks a little bit like, um, manhunter, particularly there's this shot um, right in the beginning that's a POV shot from the perspective of this killer who will learn who their identity later on in the movie. But um, the killer comes up the stairs and you see it shot from all their perspective, which again really reminded me of Manhunter in some of the early scenes where the killer is stalking through the house and he goes and murders that family when they're asleep in their bedroom. Clearly the director of this movie, whose name is Noel Nasak um, spent a little bit time watching the Michael Mann oeuvre and picked up some things and was able to bring it and elevate the level of this movie right out of the gate. So I was very appreciative of that.
1: First of all, you never have to cushion your thoughts with Molly, you did a good job because these movies are in the eye of the beholder. Okay? <laughs> bringing up what's up with you? That's why you're here. Otherwise, it would just be me running through my version. I, um, first of all, this <laughs> Being a 1989 Mao, a movie of the week, I think this was, this probably aired originally on one of the main networks as like a Friday night movie, which
2: I would guess the you're right.
1: Only thing I think is going against that. And maybe maybe this aired on Fox. I don't know. But the only thing that's going against that is sort of the subject matter. It doesn't seem like something ABC or NBC would want to associate with. So this could have been a very early lifetime sort of movie, but the movies back then were made with such, it's such better quality. It really does feel like watching any sort of early nineties, you know, thriller type movie where some bad guys about to get busted. Like it feels like one of those sort of fast paced, fun movies to watch. This is my preferred genre. If I'm being honest with you.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, again, I got to give this, this director, again, his name is Noel Nasok a, a little bit of a shout out. He, um, he has 42 credits to his name, um, almost all exclusively TV movies, but he, he definitely brought a little something to this, which was interesting. And he, um, uh, one year, or actually two years before this movie came out, he directed a TV movie version of Roman Holiday, the famous Audrey Hepburn movie, which actually starred Ed, Be- Ed Begley Jr., one of the the great TV stars of the '80s, and also Catherine Oxenberg, who we all know because we've all been watching all the Nexium documentaries, whether it's The Bow or Seduced. Um, she was the star of the Roman Holiday version, and she was uh, probably at the apex of her career around that point in time. So this dude, Noel. Um shout out to you you elevated the material which could have been really crappy and also are you right Miles like the subject matter of this story um the really sort of it's pretty SNME for something that your to your point actually probably aired on network tv and a lot of um direct references to heroin and cocaine and overdoses and I don't know it was it, it's very the subject matter is very adult
1: it is. It is very adult. I think this might have been, if this aired on TV, I feel like this was like a Sunday night movie when they knew the kids would be in in bed, you know?
2: Totally. Those kids were asleep, getting ready for school on Monday morning, and the parents were having a good night.
1: For sure. Um, so then outside of the building, we see another woman has arrived. This is Valentine, aka Vanessa Williams, better known as. And this woman has like a wicker bag and throughout this whole movie, I had no idea what this wicker basket was. I thought it was maybe like a creative overnight bag or something. I completely forgot that this has been a cat carrier for many people in the past.
2: Um, the the cat plays a major role in this movie um, for sure. As we will see later on here as, as we get further into the description.
1: Do you remember cat carriers looking like that though?
2: I I don't, I was never, um, I was never a pet person. Um, uh, One of the sad tragedies of my life is I am allergic to both dogs and cats. So we never had a pet in our family. I've got two kids now. I've got a seven year old and a four year old and they keep asking me, dad, can we get a pet? And I'm like, yo, kids, I'm allergic. I can't do that. It would ruin my life. I've tried taking medicine. None of that stuff works. Um, so I don't have a great knowledge of cat carriers, um, either from the 80s or from today. But I agree, the, the wicker thing seems weird.
1: So um, we see that... <laughs> um, I know, right? So the man that or whoever it is that killed our star in the very beginning, right? He's gone. Yeah, yeah don't
2: be sexist. It could be a man. It could be a woman. It could be anybody.
1: Yeah the person that uh, killed her is gone by now. (laughs) She discovers the body and right next to it is an empty VHS box. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things. If you were, if you're in a crime situation, if you're deep in this world, you know what that is like in their world, this may as well been like a bag of heroin, right? You know what happened here.
2: Um, You know, right away what happened. And one of the great things um about this sort of early murder in the movie again silencers this uh this person who was the culprit of this uh straight up heinous act of murder on a uh a, a, a sex mistress who was sort of minding her own business um iced by a silencer four shots um the the detectives that we get to here in a second um say that the exit wounds were as big as a Buick
1: I know, and I was actually uncomfortable by how quiet the silencer was. I was like, they shouldn't even <laughs> make those. Even the people that uh, want to be silenced, they shouldn't even they shouldn't even want that. I feel like that's going to come up and sneak up on you.
2: Um, it's absolutely going to sneak up on you. Um, I think we should ban bump stocks. I think we should ban silencers. I think we should ban all that stuff. I'm, we're not turning this into a Second Amendment debate, but I think all that stuff should be outlawed.
1: So then the person, the figure <laughs> that came and killed our, our girl, they go to a homeless encampment where there is a barrel fire, and they drop the VHS tapes into this fire. And I just couldn't help but think like, how bad that is for the homeless people. The police are on the scene now. It's the next day. There's a whole crew out there. And Lieutenant James Thompson arrives and gets the rundown from Portis, who I keep calling in my head Polaris. Throughout the entire movie, I had to check the IMDb so many times. I'm like, that's not his name. Why do you keep thinking that? His name is Portis. So apparently, this woman took four hits, one to the head and three to the chest. The exit wounds, as you mentioned, big as a Buick any of the bullets on their own would have killed her the rest were just for spite so i'm thinking they went head first right i th-
2: i think um you know one of it's a little bit of a continuity error or maybe the maybe the sensors got to them but we only see or hear because it's a silencer one shot um but a- again the police report says four shots one to the head three to the chest big as a buick i, I think probably Maybe you start with the chest to knock them down and then you finish the job with three to the head. I don't know. Or sorry, one to the head, three to the chest. I'm not quite sure. What, what would your preferred order of um, uh, if you were doing a hit job like this for, because you wanted to, to get rid of this video videotape, what would your strategy be?
1: So I would think, you know, it's pretty much a done deal if you hit the head first. I've just seen too many movies when someone's down and then, Oh, surprise they're alive. Right. So I would go right. straight for the head, but I would probably fuck up because I was so nervous and then feel like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do the head next because that's what I came here to do. And then I'll just do a couple more in the chest, you know, as a fuck you.
2: Yeah. Maybe. Um, uh, yeah. Uh- I, I appreciate that approach. I think that's probably pretty smart. I think maybe um, realistically, if they were we to see the um, uncut, uncensored version of this fantastic film from 1989, maybe it's three to the chest and then you finish off with a headshot. I'm not quite sure, but that would be my if I was a professional assassin. I'd probably go that route.
1: That probably is a better rhythm to it. If I'm being honest, I think that I would just be so freaked out <laughs> that I just you know I'd be going every, I'd be all over the place. So. Basically, um, this woman named Lucy Delgado comes over and this is a cop that he has sort of a, I would say, big sister, younger brother sort of relationship with. He mentions that he hooked up with basketball tickets for her and her husband.
2: Good guy. Lakers tickets in the 80s. Those were tough tickets to come by, especially for somebody on a police salary, you know?
1: So he's like, you know, they're all thinking this is a Jane Doe at this point, but James knows who she is. It's Constance Hecht Hecht is her name, and she's the queen of kink. He tried to put her in jail last year when the CEO of a Fortune 500 company died in her bed. Uptight guy. She did some poppers with him, and she held them under his nose. So I guess that's why it's her fault, right? She was the one who held them under his nose, and he died with diapers on. He thought uh, he thought he was going to get her second degree,
2: but the DA wouldn't go for it. Um, I I wrote down that quote, too. He died with diapers on. Um, And, you know, like we were talking a little bit earlier about like the level of adult nature of this, like clearly poppers have been around for for 40, 50 years, if not longer. I'm not totally sure of the uh, history of poppers and when they were first invented. But I can't imagine that we heard the word poppers or uh, they actually referred to it by whatever it's technical or chemical name is amyl nitrate um, on TV that that was a they, they were really pushing the envelope with this movie
1: for sure I mean I I don't even know how I know what poppers are I've never done them I know a lot of girls who Me love neither. them which is like kind of considered I think exclusively especially when you first learn about them it's sort of like a thing gay guys love poppers right totally. then come to yeah. find out years women love poppers too it's a universal experience i just i you know it's something like i could never do ketamine either because it has an another purpose and it freaks me out like at least most drugs are just drugs you know
2: right um yeah like poppers i've never done i've I guess I've done Whippets occasionally a million years ago. Um, maybe that's sort of a similar vibe. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I've been hearing a lot about, um, uh, Whippets though recently. Did you hear about this, this, uh, CEO guy from Zappos who sort of went over the edge and how he was abusing Whippets for like,
1: no, but that's hilarious.
2: Oh um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the 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 twenty second version here. So this guy, I think his name was Tony Shaw or Hasha or something like that, um, was this uh, founder of Zappos. He was forty six years old. He was super rich because he sold his business to Amazon, and he sort of like the quarantine sent him over the edge. He started. There's an incredible article about this. I'll send it to you afterwards. Um, he started buying up tons and tons and tons of property in Park City, Utah, like $70 million worth of spots over just since quarantine started. And he had Jewel, the the singer Jewel, our buddy Jewel (laughs) um, come out and she was like, yo, yo, you're doing too many drugs, dude. You need to cut it back. And he died in a mysterious fire um, uh, in his house, boarded up his house in Connecticut a couple of weeks ago. um, And he was, Addicted to whippets, isn't that crazy? He was a he was a, a again the CEO of a super huge company had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, and he just lost it in his mid forties with whippets. Isn't that crazy?
1: I, I, there's so much that's crazy about that. I guess one of them is that I was unaware that the founder of Zappos was so young.
2: I know, right? Um, Yeah. Anyway, I'll send it to you afterwards. I didn't want to derail this with a a Whippets-Zappos combo, but hearing about poppers, hearing about Whippets, um, a lot of crazy drugs. Uh, Stay off drugs, kids.
1: It just makes sense. It's like if that happened to Tom from MySpace, I would be about... (laughs) Sort of shocked, like it's just someone you don't really think about. But of course, yeah, they're a huge contributor in you know, depending on what you value in our society. So we find out that all the tapes are gone, but Portis found one in the freezer behind the spinach.
2: Behind the spinach. Which,
1: behind the spinach. I like that's the way cheese. in the
2: freezer. You know, yeah. Like, can For you think sure. nineteen eighty nine spinach in those like square sort of? Uh, uh, kind of like, I guess, Reynolds wrap kind of material. That shit was at the deep back of your freezer, right? Spinach?
1: Yeah, I kind of forgot that that's how frozen vegetables used to come.
2: It was like, maybe Birdseye was, was the name of a brand back then. And they yeah. like, it was even before it came in bags and like, now we get everything fresh. So like, people don't eat frozen spinach anymore. I don't really think very much because um, it's just around at every single grocery store you go to. But Back in the day, it was just really, really hard to get your hands on spinach. And you had two options. You had the can, and you had this frozen sort of like square brick kind of a thing. I remember we had a couple things in my freezer growing up. And I uh, the detail of this in the script is fantastic. That was behind the spinach. That's somewhere no one's ever going to look. It's like all sort of icy back there. Freezers weren't what they are today. They're, you usually get like that... That crazy, like, frost buildup that would, like, encroach from the sides and back of your freezer and, like, push everything towards the middle. Um, spinach was real deep. So, great hiding job on the sex tape in the freezer.
1: I thought it was a fun, like, comedy moment. It was totally. a moment for a bit, right? So, when James gets back to the station, he has a moment to catch up with Portis and the homicide department. Let's play this clip 612 to 702.
4: Miss
5: anything?
0: Oh, I've had a hell of a time with this tape, James They had to defrost it in the microwave Film noir, my favorite You know what we're figuring Maybe one of these trick scenes got out of hand Somebody on our client list popped Connie
5: Morris fell Whoa Go tighter Tighter No wonder that bastard refused to indict her Connie had her own pet district attorney, Morris Fell. You don't
0: figure Morris pop Connie.
5: Oh no, we can always go ask
0: him. You go ask him, James. I don't want to think what would happen at the Hall of Justice if Morris hits the fan.
1: Um. So this is what is going on with Lindsey Graham, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I have no comment on Lindsey Graham. I don't know him personally, but I do share a last name with him, so it's part of the Graham uh, family code that goes way back to Scotland in the uh, in the 12th century or so. We don't read another sure. Graham, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll just say that this entire movie, all I could think is like, this is this is real. This is what happens, is that some tape comes out, but let's be honest, right? In 2020... Seeing a tape like this come out wouldn't make or break someone. It's because of all the pioneers out there, the Vern the Troyers of the world, the you know Paris Hiltons of the world, that you can show your face in public after something like this happens. Uh,
2: you can, but you absolutely could not in uh, in 1989. And thinking a little bit about um, not only sex tapes but also sort of the. S&M, BDSM kind of uh, thrust of this movie, if you will. Um, I'm wondering if Paul Verhoeven happened to watch this movie and was like, ah, I can make a movie like Basic Instinct out of this kind of like kinky sex play gone wrong, Um, maybe on uh, with a powerful person. I think the person in basic instinct was a record exact or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that. There's also a lot of, um, as you'll get up to here in a second when they're going through some of the, um, Autopsy work. There's there's candle burns in the body, which also reminded me of Body of Evidence, that that insane and awesome Willem Dafoe Madonna movie. So I, I really think this movie that we watched, Malls, and that everyone else should watch, Full Exposure, was a real pioneer in the kinky sex games gone wrong uh, genre of crime thriller.
1: And that's such a real genre. It's very valid. Um, can we also just point out another 80s moment is that James is drinking a carton of whole milk like he's in kindergarten while they're <laughs> watching this scene. You never see someone do that anymore.
2: Um, I, I, I will. I will stop you right there. Um, uh, as as the father of two small dudes, um, I drink whole milk all the time now because it's back in my life. It, w- it went out of my life uh, probably from the age of 13 until i was you know roughly 40 when i had my first kid but now that whole milk's back in my life you need to go back to it miles it is very good it's very rich it's very fulfilling nothing really sets you back and puts you in a good mood like a nice tall glass of cold whole milk
1: yeah you're getting your vitamins in too
2: All all the vitamin D. All the vitamin D.
1: So then we see uh, this woman named Sarah in her office, and she's got a blonde bob. She's very professional, power suit on. She's on the phone with someone named Sheldon. She's going to go meet him in his office. It's her boss. And Sheldon, she's trying to convince him that she wants to go out on the street now. She's been a DA behind the desk for a very long time, but Sheldon likes her when she does her paperwork. She is, you know, he says that her... uh, mfa is worth what is it mfa the degree her masters
2: um i don't think it was her mfa i don't think she had the masters of fine arts but um i I forget i i I didn't i didn't write down the detail of what her her law degree is her jd maybe i I don't know
1: he goes your mba is worth more to us than your law degree (laughs) (laughs) very good researcher right um yeah But she convinces him, you know, she really wants to go out into the field for this. You know, he has been pushing her to sort of do that more investigative work. But for some reason, he doesn't want to give in right away. But eventually he does. So Sarah pays James a visit at the medical examiner's office. And I love a good moment with the Emmy. That's the best part of Law & Order. I love that, you know, the jargon you get sort of the idea that you're on the inside. And that's definitely something I've picked up from Law & Order, but you just know that the real good stuff is about to come once that happens.
2: It, it, you're, you're absolutely spot on with your Law & Order assessment here. This next little section of the movie feels very, very Law and Ordery. Like They go and they talk to people, and they get little bits of plot exposition mixed in with character details. Um, it's, it's straight out of the Law & Order playbook. Dick, Dick Wolf definitely watched this movie at some point.
1: For sure. And, you know, James is like just a hardened cop at this point or detective rather, because he's he's eating a sandwich in front of the dead body in the examination or the observation room, I guess you would call it. But she introduces herself and says that she's working on this case now. And he's like, well, they're ready for us in the room if you want to go. And she's like, let's just go back to the station to talk. You know, there's not a lot of mystery here. She was shot. And he says that there's still some bullets in the body. And we don't know what the killer's MO is yet. Maybe she was mutilated before, and she still has the two bullets in her. Right? So they go in to meet with the ME. Let's play nine twenty-two to ten twenty-two.
5: Good morning, Doctor. Good morning, Lieutenant. How are you? This is Sarah Dutton, DA's office. Hi, Miss Dutton. Good morning. Good morning. So, what do you got for me? Uh, no alcohol or drugs in her system at the time of death. Good muscle tone, low body fat. The victim took very good care of herself. Others took very lousy care of her. These round scarlet splotches or burn marks, possibly from candle wax. Raised lines on her buttocks and upper thighs. Our welts, contusions on her ankles and wrist. Wrists, how recent? Close to the time trauma was sustained. Or from? handcuffs maybe also clip marks on her body friends like to play rough huh cranial soul
1: well they're not her friends they're her clients like let's have some professionalism here
2: well, um, to, to be fair at this point, I'm not sure the, uh, the gentleman conducting the autopsy knew exactly who he is. You probably need some level of professional remove. Like you don't look at these, um, bodies that come into your workspace, your office, your autopsy room as people. They're just like things that you do. So it- you probably, I would guess if I was doing autopsies all day, every day, I, I wouldn't look at these as human beings with a life and a family they left behind and, and people who are sad about their passing. You need to look at it cold and clinically.
1: For sure. And Sarah does not. I mean, the bone saw really puts her over the top, but she cannot keep it together at all during this. And, you know, it's hard to imagine what you would do if you were in this situation, but I would like to think that I probably just wouldn't be able to process it. I don't think I would have been able to get sick because I don't, I don't think I would be able to like give human traits to that body.
2: Yeah. I think that, um, uh, I, I have never seen anything like this either. Um, but I I think that I would be similar to you malls and that I would probably just stand there with, uh, no reaction on my face. Um, and just sort of like soaking it in, not like in an, I'm interested way, just like I'm too horrified to move. And
1: while it's so not personal, it is a little bit embarrassing to think that no matter what, no matter how you go, someone will be looking at and assessing your naked body be- like oh, before uh, you're buried. Uh,
2: that's that's got to be the worst part of dying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how embarrassing. I know. I there's this woman on TikTok, I don't know her name, but she said something about how if I ever go missing and they put my weight on that flyer I'm never coming back and I was like "That is such a good point the descriptions also the age progression none of it is kind I have to be honest I mean maybe we'll find you but you probably won't want to come back from whatever happened
2: Um, you know also here in this autopsy scene they talk about the candle wax burns and again I have to I have to bring it back to body of evidence have you seen body of evidence I don't think so what
1: I know. I haven't. I haven't even seen The Godfather. Like I'm kind of <laughs> I'm well, major. Like I've. I've just missed out on a lot of stuff.
2: I, I think you need to um, uh, before you watch The Godfather. You should watch Body of Evidence, which is um, a, a movie that came out a couple years after Basic Instinct. There was a cash in, more or less, but um, uh, it, it's not great. But it does fe- feature Madonna in her. Um, in her phase when she was very, very into uh, sex and nudity and really, really pushing the envelope. You know, she famously had that um, really expensive um, hardcover book, Sex, where she took naked photos with her and Big Daddy Kane and Vanilla Ice and all sorts of folks. And right around that same time, she made this basic instinct knockoff with Willem Dafoe. And there is a major, major, major part of the movie where they spend an entire NC17 sex scene pouring dripping hot Madonna is uh, straddling uh she's on top of Willem Dafoe they're doing it and she is pouring candle wax on him and it is once you see it it will be burned in your brain every time you see or smell a candle for the rest of your life you will think about that scene miles you need to get into it
1: you know that's something that like always on on like christmas eve I'll finally be like, you know what? I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to watch that movie that I've been meaning to watch for years. So who knows? Maybe this Christmas Eve, I could be fulfilling your wishes of watching that movie.
2: (laughs) Um, Merry Christmas to you.
1: Merry Christmas as well. So, okay. So then James checks up on Sarah because she's having a moment. And she's doing this thing where she's sort of rubbing the side of her face with the palm of her hand. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, oh, my sister does that as well. And it's like, well, this isn't like some notable thing. Like, it's, it's strange because it never comes back.
2: Uh, it, it is a little bit of a, you know, you would think that it's sort of like the Chekhov's gun. Like the cheek rubbing would pay off down the road. Because it it, it is brought up, and you're right, in an absolutely weird way. Um, but you're right, it never pays off. That was a that was one one thing our boy, Noel Nosok, didn't do a great job of.
1: Now, can we talk about the writing? Because Steven Zito is the guy that wrote this. And I texted you earlier that I feel like this guy, I mean, he sort of wrote these characters. It it feels like jazz a little bit, where it's a little like free-flowing, but it's also deeply overcomplicated. Like he speaks in such like jargon and jive. And like, he has so much going on in his speech that There was a couple moments as I was going through this and taking down every note where I was like, do I understand what he just said? It just went by so quickly. But there's so much in every sentence. It's kind of obtuse, honestly.
2: Um, there's a heavy level of detail in this movie and the screenwriter, I think also deserves a shout out. He does get things a little unnecessarily complicated, but he also does have a number of just like striking one liners. And we've already said a bunch of them here so far, but like he died with his diapers on. That's a great line. Um, there's a line that comes later on when we meet amazing grace, which we'll talk more in a bit, but you know, they say you look like something that died under a sink, exit wounds as big as a Buick. This guy is like, He's definitely given in his all. The screenwriter, you can tell it wasn't just a pay for numbers job for this guy. He felt something in this, and again, he should be credited as sort of like a purveyor of this early level of uh, uh, sex tapes BDSM thing going mainstream. Steve Zedon, you said the same, is?
1: Yeah, he's a stylistic writer. Truly, like he definitely, I feel like probably that's his a stamp across all of his work. And I want to watch at least a couple other things he does because i'm so fascinated by the writing in this if i'm being honest with you um but yeah midnight caller was a show that he wrote on uh lonesome lonesome dove was huge dude
2: he wrote on lonesome dove
1: three episodes yeah he did part one part two and part three i think it wasn't it only three parts
2: Holy shit. Um, Well, then maybe that guy's an Emmy winner. Uh, Because wasn't Lonesome Dove like that? That was huge. That was a a, a major, major, major work of uh, TV miniseries history.
1: Yeah. I just remember my mom really loved it like, really, really loved it. (laughs) And so I was, you know, I was younger at the time. In 1994, I was like probably 10. So it's definitely something I mostly. Knew up from my mom loving it so much he also wrote 31 episodes of jag
2: um wow good for good for that guy just just a working writer knocking it out probably has a great house i would guess
1: oh for sure so um he tells her that he called the hall of justice to try and get morris fell on the phone but was denied now remember morris fell is the guy from the sex tape so she tells him that he's got rights just like everyone else. And James understands. But the last time he dealt with Fel, he, call- he, did not- he knocked down his case. And she tells him that in time, he will be available. And he's like, well, you know, first 48, that's when all the good stuff happens. We got to get to him soon before the trail goes cold. So they get that <laughs> meeting. And uh, Fel says that he heard there was an incriminating videotape of him found behind the spinach. And he says that it's circumstantial at best, that no, there's no proof that he had anything to do with this. And Sarah's like, well, I saw Exhibit A, meaning she saw the tape, which like, I don't like, why would you tell someone that? I would be, I would never tell anyone if I saw their sex tape. I would just totally, I understand why she did it for the, for the movie, but they're kind of co-workers. I mean, she's just the DA. Why is she telling him that?
2: it's a level of detail that i'm not sure i totally grasp either um but i feel like if you i don't know if you saw somebody in a sex tape and then you saw them in real life uh it would be hard not to bring it up or i don't know You, you uh, met her. i'm sure you didn't bring it up when you met her
1: oh certainly not no but i'm sh- i'm kind of like a pussy like that i'm very shy i'm never one to like I'm not aggressive in conversation like that. So James says that he's well aware that Fel blocked that case for Connie, the diaper man one. And now he's going to share with him how he sees this homicide. So he's seeing that Connie calls him up for help again. So he goes over to her place, but this time he wants the sex tape. She doesn't give it up. So he shoots her in the teeth at close range. And Fel's like... Yeah. Fell's like, lol. Like, he's like, come on. I was working last night. And James, like, you know, James wants Connie's client list. He feels like if he can get him the client list and the introductions to everyone, he's probably going to let him go for this. And Phil asked him if he's seriously asking him to do all of that legwork and drop the obstruction of justice charges in exchange to keep the sex tape under wraps. So Sarah asked him, what are you so afraid of? And he said, getting buried alive with a screwdriver in my eye.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um w- w- what are you afraid of, Mals? Let, let- let's know. Get- you gotta tell the audience here. What what are you afraid of if you if that happened to you, if you were put in a similar situation, what would your what would your go-to uh, descriptor here be?
1: Oh um, I don't know, like ripping my skin off with a, with like a wire coat hanger.
2: Ooh. Yeah. What? That's a bad one.
1: Especially around like the mouth, you know, those muscles oh. inside the mouth. That seems very painful. Like I don't even like to get Novocaine at the dentist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that does seem super painful. I agree. Yikes. You just gave me the willies. What's yours? I don't know. I sort of think, um, I think one of the worst ways is maybe like getting like chewed to death by something, by like, like a rabid wolf or something like that. Yeah, that feels bad to me. I, I, I don't like that one bit or burning. Uh, yeah. Anything that's prolonged getting it in the teeth is not that bad. It would, you know, usually when you think about people getting shot in the mouth, like the gun goes into the mouth past the teeth. So the teeth aren't involved. It just goes out through the back of your brain. So the teeth part is a good detail. Again, shout out to our boy, Steve Zito, doing a good job. But those are the things that would freak me out.
1: Yeah. The last thing I would want to feel right before I die is my teeth getting knocked out by a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so James and <laughs> go to a porn set <laughs> is one of the many things I did when I worked at Gawker. I went to the set of Asian Chicks 9. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that story well because I enjoyed that day so much and it taught me so much about this industry and I'm not being tongue in cheek or joking about that at all. I am so happy that I had that experience in my life of going to a porn set because it, it just, it demystified the entire thing for me. I wish that every girl could take her husband to a porn set. It's so, I don't know. It's just, it was like a weight off my shoulders that I didn't know I was carrying.
2: What would, um, what would it accomplish of, uh, a, a woman, uh, taking her husband or boyfriend or significant other to a porn set? What would, what would that do? Um, say that, say my wife is to take me to a porn set. What would I see and what would be my end reaction out of it?
1: Well, first of all, I said husband because I thought maybe taking your boyfriend to a porn set is a little bit aggressive. (laughs) I was self-editing in that moment because I was like, "Don't boyfriend, that's crazy." Your husband, but no. The the thing is, is like it just it kind of. Ruins it for you. I think if that's if you're, you know, I don't watch porn. I don't think that's like particularly interesting, but I feel like, you know, it all relies on the fantasy. Right. And there's nothing less sexy than getting to a porn set. And it's like, you know, a bunch of overweight men like hunched over their equipment just like being very technical about the work that they have to do and seeing that craft services is some like chips and candy laid out on a white towel on the granite countertop in the kitchen. Of course, these all get filmed and like rented out mansions for the day. The one I was, it was some plastic surgeon had rented out their house while they were at work all day. And that's just, that's how rich people make money. For real.
2: (sighs) you, you got to have money to make money. Um, and just so we're clear, you know, we did work together um, and I was your boss for a short period of time, but I definitely did not send you on this assignment. This was, this predates me or postdates no, me.
1: It was Fleshbot. So while I worked for Defiant, <laughs> I also worked for Gawker Media as a whole. So I was yep. sort of the West coast video girl. So I got sent to things for Jezebel. I got sent to things for Fleshbot. I went to, Gizmodo.
4: The,
1: yes, I went to the premiere of Night Rider, which starred Olivia Wilde, a young Olivia Wilde. I interviewed her for Jalopnik.
2: Jalopnik, shout out to our boy Ray Wirt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but like looking back, that it it was such a crazy time. Those things that I would go to for Defamer because all of those people that were sort of the C list, D list actresses that were on the carpet or maybe just like the new actresses looking back, I can't believe I interviewed Olivia Wilde about her Toyota Corolla or whatever it was she was driving then.
2: Um, incredible. But I, again, I just wanted to clear for the record that I did not um, force you to go to a porn set. It, it was somebody else.
1: You did not force me to go. That was okay, I, good. That had nothing to do with you. So, <laughs> They get to the set, and the director says that he saw Connie a few days before the murder when she walked out during the filming of Peaches and Scream. She just like completely left. It was almost on bad terms. Nothing too crazy, but his friend Helen, who's there working, she was there, and he's like, Helen, where was I last night? And she was like, we were at home in bed. I got a stiff neck from looking up at that mirror on the ceiling. (laughs) So he wants to um, he wants the address for Mickey Ludwig, a talent agent who helps him find actresses for his films. And he's like, I don't have a current address for him. James threatens to have him audited, which I was like, oh, that is such a good call. I would have never thought of that. It's why I'm not a detective, probably one of the many reasons why. But what a great call to just threaten to audit the shit out of some guy like that.
2: Uh, Yeah, I I would imagine there is a lot of uh, money laundering opportunities that go together hand in hand with the adult film industry. And uh, as we all know from what our president has been uh, dodging for the last 10 years, uh, you don't want somebody peeking under the hood of your taxes.
1: Mm -mm. So he gives uh, Mickey the address of the Eden Hotel. That's apparently where Mickey is staying. But before we leave, They have a word with a man who is smoking in a harness in a recliner with a, I guess, a bathrobe on of sorts. Let's (laughs) look at this clip, 1434 to 1603.
5: You look like something that died under a sink.
0: Thank you very much, darling. Just what does it say that I have to talk to you while I'm meditating?
5: (laughs) There was a time when Amazing Grace could get away with anything. Star tripping bad coke etiquette his golden years that's when he was as dependable as a Swiss watch but he's a bit run down recently see Miss Dutton what interests me is that John Grace here worked trick scenes with Connie Hedges who told you that? I thought you weren't speaking to me
0: Well, I mean you just can't go around saying things then help
5: me out give me some names
0: people in Connie's world don't have names Sometimes they don't even have
5: faces. Especially when someone uses a gun, up close and personal.
0: I will tell you this, I was here last night, all night, in this room. We went into flex, time. I didn't wrap until four. Look, John, Connie
5: wasn't listed in the yellow pages under kink. So what I want to know is, who did she work for and how did the right people find her, okay? Did you suddenly develop hearing loss?
0: Look, a person could get killed just
2: talking to you.
1: The music is really good in this movie, actually.
2: A plus. Um, uh, incredible Phil Collins knockoff stuff here. Great synth work.
1: I love that he busted him for bad coke etiquette. Right? Yes. There's a lot
2: of there's a lot of great shit, a lot of great details in this movie. And again, you know, I think I brought this up earlier, but uh, as we just heard in that clip, "You look like something that died under a sink." What an incredibly descriptive, evocative phrase. I mean, A plus work there, right?
1: Yes, and we know by now that James doesn't give a fuck. He's one of those detectives. He does things his own way. He's not going to talk to people the way that you know you would think some like dignified detective no he goes deep he's like i know all about ya he actually knows a little bit too much if i'm being honest
2: um uh, you're right um he does he seems like he knows a little too much and at this point in the movie i have to admit i was starting to suspect uh our our boy tony denison here of potentially being uh, a potential culprit of this uh going through some sort of uh uh maybe dissociative personality disorder or something. Um, I, my, my interest was raised by him in and around this time in the movie. How about you? Did, you? did you ever suspect that he was the culprit?
1: I didn't think him, but I did think Hortis at one point.
2: Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, that's fair.
1: But no, he definitely, it's like he knows a little bit too much. Like, it's almost like he went to rehab with these guys and then got out and decided to be a detective.
2: um speaking of rehab and speaking of this scene um the 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 porn star who's sort of the guy in the chair who's meditating who they interrupt um, amazing grace again another fantastic detail here he's a real john holmes looking kind of motherfucker you know he like he looks like he probably went both ways he got paid for all sorts of stuff on the law and i can't help but think one this this guy was clearly inspired by john holmes and two again getting at the influence of this movie um do we think that paul thomas anderson maybe watched this and got the idea for boogie nights by this what do you think
1: I think he stole this. I like to accuse people of stealing a lot of the show. Like, I'm not able to as far as to inspired. I would say that he stole this. He, interesting you say bisexual because I don't know what it was about this, but this interaction did feel a little homophobic to me. I don't know why. It just, there was something about it that felt like it had a much more, you know, underlying hatred than you would expect.
2: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he he says that he looks like he like something that died under a sink. Um I, I'm not totally sure what that phrase means, but you're right, it's something that's dirty, it's something that's dark, it's something that's like um uh lights don't get down underneath sinks very much. So I think he's definitely accusing him of uh uh uh, like I said before, sort of going both ways and being a bisexual, and clearly looking down at sex work and professional um, uh, professional actors together.
1: Interesting fact: Judson Scott, the name of the actor who plays Amazing Grace, he was born in the same town as Sheena Shea, Azusa, California.
2: <laughs> um, that's incredible.
1: Are you a fan of Vanderpump?
2: Um. I am sort of, kind of a fan, and, and I won't get too much into this, but um uh you of course know Stassi.
1: Of course.
2: So my brother, who you know, Miles, uh Adam Graham, Graham Rama, uh course. his one of his, I would say, like maybe one or two best friends in the world is Patrick, uh Stasi's ex.
1: Shut the fuck up. Are you kidding
2: True. me? True story. Uh, They went to high school together. Um, uh, Patrick's a good dude. As you know, he's a radio host. I've known him for a really, really long time. My brother has known him for a really long time. And so that's my connection to Vanderpump, but I never really watched it very much. Of course, I knew who all those people are. I know all of them by name. Um, It's my job to know all this stuff, but I don't actively watch the show and I'm not a fan.
1: That's an incredibly hot take that Patrick is a great guy because he got the shittiest edit on that show.
2: He did get a really bad edit. I I will confess, I watched most of those seasons to see how somebody that I know in real life would come off on reality TV. And I think he got a really bad villain at it.
1: Yeah. And Stassi was over the moon for him, like for years. I mean, like just it was it was a whole thing. He took her away from the show to begin with. You know, that was sort of always how he was painted was this like guy that came in and swept stassi off of her feet so it was um yeah it's interesting that you say that i had no idea and by the way your brother is one of my most consistent and kindest supporters over the years your brother has always been so sweet
2: so um, yeah w- one day I'll, i will um uh you guys will you two will meet uh, uh together in person because he's been a big fan for a long time uh as have i of course
1: should he come on the pod
2: I think he would love to, you know, he used to, um, uh, go on to Patrick's radio show. Um, when Patrick was on Cosmo radio, he had this show called Cock's with P cocktails with P and, uh, my brother was a regular. I think he was, he was like the movie critic of that show or something like that.
1: Well then he's got to come on, come on. That's huge.
2: I will, I will invite him on. This is so much fun. Thanks again for inviting me.
1: Of course. So. Mickey's leaving the hotel right when James and Sarah pull up. And or, and yeah, James tells him, you know, James tells Sarah, stay in the car, sweetie, basically. And Mickey makes a break for it. As soon as he sees him, we go on a chase. I'm not going to take you through it. Just imagine a chase. And James finally gets him. He reads him his rights. And he says that the crime lab found his prints everywhere. And he's like, nope. I worked with her. It was strictly business. I managed her at one point. And James is like, well, yeah, you know, you managed her until you didn't manage her. Like maybe you had an issue with her. And he's like, nope. Last time I saw her, borrowed a hundred bucks from her. And I headed out because she had a trick coming over. So Sarah's caught up to him at this point, And she tells him that a better d- job description for him is probably a pimp. And he is like, nope. She was one of my big stars. John's like, well, things obviously went sour between the two of you. So Mickey's in Mickey's in a lot of trouble. But he says that he has an alibi. He was at Silver's Lounge from seven to closing. He used the hundred bucks he got on drinks for the entire house. And later on, they're going to say how much these drinks cost. And when I tell you, my stomach fell down to my feet. I, I sincerely mean it. I had no idea how cheap it was to drink in the 80s.
2: I have that exact same <laughs> note for when we get to that spot.
1: So Sarah and James are going all over all the evidence together. Why is Connie, she had $100,000 in cash. Like, what's the deal with that, right? And James says that she was a big player in the industry. She worked the safe houses. Safe houses are where people play games. The addresses change. She served the powerful and connected. And that's why Fell would go to prison before he cooperated. So safe houses, that's an interesting reclaiming of the
2: word. (laughs) Reclaiming. Um, Yeah, when they were called safe houses, I thought, you know, um, this isn't what safe houses are, at least in my squares view of the world, Um, you know, just watching TV and movies. But I, I never thought a safe house was a sex house.
1: Yeah, no, I think of a safe house as like where Punky Brewster would go if Henry Warnemont had a heart attack or something.
2: Oh, that's how you think of safe house?
1: Well, also like a, you know, a battered woman's shelter or something.
2: Oh my gosh. So I have a totally different take and it's probably because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a dude. But when I think of safe houses, I think of like the spy movie, you know, like Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, Ethan Hunt's mission's been blown up. He's got to go somewhere to like shower, get a little bit of rest. And he, so he goes to a safe house a place where um, nobody else knows that this place exists.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's
2: a, okay. Oh, So that's, that's wild. Okay. So, the, the, wow. I'm learning so much.
1: <laughs> uh, th- we have to figure that out on Urban Dictionary. I would love to know how they swing on that. But in the mix of all the evidence, they find an envelope from Deborah Lee Taft. She's a big uh, Hollywood modeling agent. He's always suspected that her agency is where the clientele was coming from. And Sarah notes that Deborah sent her $19,000. And he's like, no one has ever been able to bust her for anything because she has powerful friends. I'm thinking almost like she's a Heidi Fleiss type in this town.
2: Uh, Absolutely. I think she is a proto-Heidi Fleiss. And I think that just like PTA stole Boogie Nights from this movie... I think that Heidi Fleisch probably stole her entire business from this movie. What do you think?
1: I agree. I think that's definitely true because she had to get it from somewhere, right? <laughs> uh,
2: it, it must have been uh, this movie.
1: But she is a true innovator because don't ever forget that she bought the only house in a town that is known only for having meth factories and filled it with parrots. And only a true innovator <laughs> could come up with that.
2: Um, uh- <laughs> you're right i agree
1: that's a genre of person for sure so back on the porn set connie's friend valentine who found her body comes to talk to grace so let's play this scene 1923 to 2036
3: hey grace how'd you like to be rich man it's a it's a sex tape grace Connie made 27 of them. The rest of them vanished. So the two, maybe three people are after this one, though. I figure they wanted about half a million bad.
0: Great. Why come to me? I'm broke.
3: Because you're the meanest man I know. I want you to help me sell off the tape to the highest bidder.
0: How do you know you can trust
3: me? Because you get half.
0: Okay, then how do I know I can trust you?
3: Hey, look, man, I've already talked to Lenny Coles. He's expressed serious interest.
0: That's not surprising considering how many people lenny be able to blackmail with it.
3: So what do you say, man? Are we partners? Two days, we can be rich.
0: Rich or dead? Valentine, come on. You don't cross these people. Just look what they did to Connie. Look,
3: look, Grace, this could be your ticket out of here. You can quit while you're ahead. No more movies, no more trick scenes. You can just lie on the beach in Maui. What do you say, man? I don't know.
0: Let me
1: think about it. This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. I've been subscribed to Book of the Month for three months now, and I am obsessed. If you're a big reader or maybe even a lapsed big reader who's been wanting to get back into it regularly, consider checking it out. Book of the Month, they've read like hundreds of books every month from new and emerging authors, and they whittled down the list to just the very best. They provide you a diverse little selection of hardcover fiction to pick from, which is an element of it that I really love. I can find going into the bookstore to be super overwhelming, and when I know I have about a dozen really solid options to choose from, it makes the decision way easier. Plus, it's cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and there's a loyalty program with rewards and even lower prices if you choose to stick around. There's an app where you can pick your upcoming books and track the progress of your reading, and there are challenges on there with rewards. Your book arrives in a super aesthetically pleasing box, by the way. That's the kind of touch that I always really appreciate. Personally, I read at my own pace. Sometimes I can only get to one of my two books a month, and I keep the ones I haven't read yet on my windowsill right next to my bed so I can just see them all there. It inspires me to pick one up and read. It's nice to have options in front of you. If you're interested in trying it out, you can get your first book for $5 with code PASTEL at bookofthemonth.com. That's code PASTEL at bookofthemonth.com. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. speaking of bad Coke etiquette, did you not get the Valentine was on some sort of substance in this? She seems like sweaty and like she's breathless and it's more than just the hot sex tape she's sitting on.
2: Uh, yeah. Do you? Uh, yeah. Uh, I agree. This, just this performance by, um, uh, by Vanessa Williams, it's just weird uh, <laughs> and not necessarily in a great way. Um, so I watch this movie pretty closely and, uh, being somebody that watches a lot of movies and TV, you can, you can pretty clearly spot a bad ADR, uh, read. And Noel Nossock, our director of this film, I think does an impeccable job throughout. Um, but the only time that I could identify an ADR additional dialogue recording overdubbed scene was the scene with Vanessa Williams. I don't think she was able to nail it on set.
1: There's two with her that are really bad. There's one later on in the safe house as well. That's like egregious. And, you know, while I definitely talk about these movies slightly to hate on them, for the most part, I don't like to fall, like, you know, throw individuals under the bus, but the sound mixing in this is fucking a nightmare. It's a nightmare.
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, um, I agree with that. Um, But it's also pretty clearly, like I said, ADR and they probably could have spent a little bit more time to, to get that room tone right uh, in the booth. But anyway, um, that was just one of the things I noticed about this scene.
1: So then James goes to the agency to talk to Deborah, the big time talent agent, but he's stopped by a big guy, a bouncer and sort of a, it looks like a tuxedo, but it's not. And he calls Deborah on her office line and tells James, that she's busy and he should make an appointment right he knows he's a cop but he doesn't give a shit earl doesn't give a shit so james then decides to start accusing this guy of being a criminal which i thought was again a very just out-of-pocket choice from james
2: he's he's a good detective i think he's got he's got good understanding of human psyche and behavior And he understands what happens if you aggressively push someone's buttons. You're going to get uh, an unexpected response and something that someone who was thinking more clearly and more rationally probably wouldn't give you.
1: You know what? I bet he sucked as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. You only wind up in this line of work if you kind of like sucked as a kid and you had to channel it into something. But... (laughs) Basically, you know, Earl, we do find out that, uh, you know, Earl is definitely packing. He notices that he has a gun on him. He says that he, <laughs> he does this by calling him out, telling him that he needs to stop buying suits off the rack. So he goes straight for his pocketbook, really. He's like, you're poor, Earl, and you have a gun. I can tell. So then Deborah does agree to take the meeting with James. Deborah's office is such a relic. It really truly is. And on her desk is it's two cones. I don't know how to describe it, but just for all of our interior design people at home, it's like a, a mauve cone and a, I would say very dark purple cone. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that there's supposed to be some sort of signifier of like wealth and class, but looking at them, I just, it's impossible to move forward. This era was so unfortunate for interior design.
2: Yeah, this, uh, I, A great period detail that I think someone who was doing production design in 2020 would miss. This is something you only catch in the moment because it's actually happening and you didn't have much time to to dress the room. Um, An amazing piece.
1: So let's play this scene between the two of them, 2227 to 2439.
5: How do you do, Miss Taft? James Thompson. Tell me, where did you find Earl? Rent a felon?
3: Earl is my personal assistant can't be too careful these days, Lieutenant. You never know what kind of, um, element might walk in off the street.
5: Two days ago, one of your girls was shot in the face.
3: Suddenly, I don't like you.
5: Well, if you don't like me now, just wait. I get better. I'd like some information on a Constance Hecht.
3: Earl, would you see if we have a file on a Constance... Hecked.
5: In the past 13 months The Taft agency Paid Connie $19,000 And you have to ask Girl to look up her name
3: I represent A considerable body Of talent Thank you Let's see So far this year Your Miss Hecht Went out three times she worked two conventions. The dentist in February, financial planners in April. She did a pictorial layout for Spankers quarterly. She was a model. I paid her for her time.
5: 19 grand.
3: Oh, you say she made $19,000. I'd be interested in knowing where you got your figures.
5: I'll bet you would.
3: I estimate my payments to her at... Um, less than $1,000. Look, Miss Taft...
5: I spent the other night at the morgue. I can tell you to the ounce how much Connie's heart weighed. What did you do two nights ago?
3: Earl and I went to the fights. The title match went 15 rounds. After that, we went out for a late dinner downtown. Blackburn Tavern. Earl ate two steaks.
5: Well, thank you for your time, Miss Taft. My pleasure. Later, Earl. Have a nice day.
1: So I love that Earl is her personal assistant.
2: Yeah, it's, a. Uh, um, I, we have to say, I think, um, uh, sooner rather than later that, um, our boy Earl here is none other than uncle Phil from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air.
1: I figured that was who he was. I just wasn't positive.
2: Oh, it, I, I'm positive. It's really clear. And his, in his voice, um, is very different as uncle Phil than it is here in this movie. And, um, I don't know what that actor's voice sounds like in real life, but I'm curious which one of those two is an accent. They're both great.
1: Do you think she was afraid to say bodyguard or do you think that he really does like go down to Jerry's famous deli and gets her her Cobb salad?
2: (laughs) Uh, I think he's uh, definitely a personal assistant. He's fabulous. He probably had a Palm Pilot, early Silicon Valley prototype. I think he's a, a, a professional man.
1: Can I tell you, though, even just thinking about that, the Cobb salad from Jerry's Famous Deli fucking slaps, and I can't wait until we're out of this quarantine. I probably haven't had one in a decade, but I want that salad right now. Like, right now.
2: Um, Didn't a a really uh, seminal deli in LA just close during quarantine?
1: Oh, so much closed, Nate and Al's?
2: No. Um... Swingers Shit. closed
1: uh, just isn't a. I, I,
2: I saw that, but there's no there's a specific deli I'm thinking about. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll I'll try to look it up while we're talking.
1: Not green blots.
2: No, Cantors? No, I don't oh, know. Oh, oh, no.
1: that would be. I don't think like the the community would let Cantor shut down.
2: No, but it's somewhere that's big. Um, our friend Eric Spiegelman would know. Um, I'll, I'll ping him later.
1: Yeah, ping him. What does that mean, by the way? Ping someone.
2: Uh, probably not what I think it means. <laughs> uh, I'll shoot him a DM or something. I'll slide into his DMs.
1: It's BlackBerry terminology, right? Like someone would ping you if you didn't answer?
2: Pro- pro- probably. I-, I think that probably sounds right. I'm not totally sure of the uh, etymology of that term.
1: I'm just asking you because I it's something that I always hear people say, and I don't think I've ever really had the courage to ask anyone. So I'm being very vulnerable right now. But okay, I love that were their alibis that they were at a boxing match which leads me to the ultimate question what do you think about Logan Paul v floyd mayweather
2: <laughs> this is exactly I've got two hours of material on this fight no um uh, the Logan Paul boxing thing is, um, is is pretty interesting on a lot of levels I think uh, I won't get too too into the weeds on it but uh, I'm excited to see where this this fight goes.
1: YouTube boxing is the best. It's so entertaining. I'm uh, obsessed. I, with
2: it. I, 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 I agree, um, and uh, yeah, that uh, fight with that dude Logan Paul and uh, Nate Robinson. The pieces that I saw on the internet were um, a, a spectacular thing to watch. Just yeah,
1: Jake Paul. Jake Paul was the one that did Jake. that. Yeah. By the way, so they when they had their first fight, Logan and KSI and Jake also boxed in that one too. Listen to me talking about sports. I actually bought the on-demand. I guess it wasn't pay-per-view, but it kind of was. It was like a online version of that. But how much? How
2: much was it? Was it like thirty-nine ninety-nine?
1: Ten bucks.
2: Oh, it was ten and- bucks. Oh, that's I, I would have done that in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah. And like the best part was, is that there was so many undercards, right? So all of these YouTubers that are not fighters in any way were like, yeah, I'm going to get in the ring. I'm going to try it out. One of the most amazing stories that came out of that was this guy named Scarce, who's sort of like a commentary YouTuber. He lost like 80 pounds in order to be able to fight. And it was like, you know, it was such like a victory to even see that he had trained that part and like taken it that seriously. And so it's just so much like great human drama because these are people that they're, they're very accessible. I feel like unlike most fighters, you really don't know their day in, their day out. But with the Paul bros, it's quite literally everyday bro. So there's so much, so many ways to like figure out what's going on, their stories, what their lives are like. And I watched those fights for six hours straight it was just six hours of a live stream and it was fascinating i couldn't turn away from it
2: uh, that sounds like something i should definitely check out the next time that i have one of those that was a, an incredible endorsement i love it
1: it's coming up so <laughs> meets sarah at connie's apartment she was supposed to be side by side with him throughout this whole thing so she's kind of pissed off right and she says that she doesn't think that this is where Connie really lived. There's nothing personal here. And then we hear Daisy meowing and James has never been, a, he's, he's kind of a Mark Graham type, right? Like he doesn't know how to deal with animals, right? He's like, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, which is, I, you know, I've gone from having wags, wags passed away not that long ago, but I did get, um, I did adopt an 11 year old cat early on into quarantine and just recently got a kitten. And my cleaning lady is not a cat person. And I've had to slowly, you know, we're still working on it, but explain to her that she can't talk to them the way that she did to Wags, where she's like, go to your mom or whatever. She would always say that to Wags, go to your mom, right? (laughs) Martha, they don't give a shit about anything. Like you really can't you can't yell at a cat. You can't tell them what to do. They don't not I don't know if they don't understand as much as they don't give a shit. They are so entirely unmoved. But Sarah decides to tell James, you know, you don't really talk to a cat like that. And she goes up to it, realizes there's a different address on the collar. She lives with Valentine. The two of them have a cute little apartment. Honestly, if I had to guess what part of the city it's in, it's probably like on Curson or something. It's a really <laughs> Of Hollywood apartment it reminds me of where like Ed lived for sure so (laughs) Valentine is uh yeah she has them at the place and she wants to know if she needs a lawyer smart girl and James tells her that the more she cooperates the less likely she is to need one and by the way I would totally fall into that trap I would be so paralyzed with fear that if cops told me oh just tell me everything you know and you'll probably be fine I would absolutely do that
2: <laughs> um uh I, I hear you. I, I can do nothing but co sign that.
1: It takes big balls to tell the cops that you want your lawyer. Even though that's your right, you just seem guilty right away.
2: Um I, I agree. Um it, it's one of those scenes where you just say like you should say nothing and call for your lawyer, but it's TV, so of course they don't do that.
1: Right. So Sarah says the DA thinks that Connie was involved in blackmail and extortion. What was her scam? She says that Connie was always good to her, but is this supposed to? Is she supposed to rearrange her life over this? So that's what that's Valentine. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Cl- Valentine's like I don't want to be inconvenienced by this. Like this is already a murder investigation in the middle of my life.
2: Um, can we can we talk for a second about um uh about Spankers Quarterly, the uh oh, okay. the magazine that is that is brought up during this scene? Hmm. So do you think uh this is a quarterly publication? Do we think it's classy, like, um, uh, like some sort of classy skin magazine? I don't know. What do you What do you think of Spanker's quarterly? Who's the subscriber for that?
1: No, you're so right. Because the only magazines I subscribe to quarterly are like super, like upstanding publications, like Bitch Magazine.
2: I get intellectual magazines, right? Like, who does a quarterly? Like, you're you're aiming for. Um, certainly a college educated, if not higher educated, like demographic here. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of interested where Spankers Quarterly is here in the 2020 media environment, what their social media strategy is like, how their Instagram game is. I don't know. It's, it's just something I've I've been thinking about here.
1: Yeah. Do you think their dream is to be a monthly magazine and they're just sort of getting off the ground?
2: Uh, Well, I just hope that they didn't have their budget cut. And now it's, you know, like uh, a spankers, like biannual kind of a thing where they do two issues a year uh, rather than four. I hope they were able to keep their funding and and make smart moves in the digital space.
1: They're online for sure. Absolutely. So um, Sarah says that she had apparently Valentine had had multiple arrests for prostitution. So she might want to consider a new gig. Maybe it's not such a bad idea to change her life up right now. And Valentine's like, you know what? You guys got to go. But before she can, James asked her if Connie had any reason to be afraid for her life. And Valentine's like, listen, we're all afraid for our life right now. And, and personally, you're scaring the hell out of me. So once they're outside, James asked Sarah where she learned to interrogate. And Sarah's like, listen, I know that was bad, but I'm a little bit <laughs> over <open there." laughs> At least she knew, you know?
2: Right. Well, I mean, in her... um, You know, in her defense, uh, less than 24 hours ago, she encountered a bone saw. So she's a little rattled.
1: Right. And like less than 36 hours ago, she was never leaving her desk. Her life was going to be reading papers and using that MBA. Um,
2: And and we see her uh, life decisions and life choices spiral rapidly throughout the course of this movie.
1: And James did something that I'm pretty sure is illegal, but we're gonna let it slide because it's a movie. He stole an address book full of fourteen-digit numbers while they were in there. Isn't that
2: 14 illegal? Fourteen-digit numbers. So that means with area codes, right? Is that what fourteen meant?
1: So fourteen is there's okay. So at, at later on in the movie, they're gonna say that they sent it to a USC, uh, numer like numerologist or something. And this guy was able to break it down. I think it's a code.
2: Oh, it's a, So it's like a code breaker situation. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Ani wasn't fucking around. This was not her first rodeo. She's like straight up going into the Zodiac world. <laughs>
2: um, I love it.
1: Valentine watches them leave. And then she takes Sarah's business card and she puts it in the desk on top of the tape that they're all looking for. So Valentine, as we knew before, is in possession but so casually in possession, like James was right there hovering over that whole thing. And as we know, and as we'll continue to find out, James has no home training when it comes to keeping his hands to himself. Like he no. goes into this place and he just starts fucking with everything.
2: He does not care about the integrity of a crime scene. He wants to gather evidence and he doesn't care if he breaks a few laws. I love that guy.
1: I was a babysitter who snooped. And I own that now because I am the type of person at this point in my life, when I go into someone's bathroom at their house at a party or something, the last thing I would ever do is look in their medicine cabinet. But there are a lot of people that just assume you're going to do that. Like I've been to people's houses and after leaving their bathroom, and this has happened more than once being like, Oh, um, you probably saw my medication for my seizures, and now I should tell you I have epilepsy. And I'm like, what are you, what? And <laughs> I, people <I>, <laughs> confess things to me based off of the fact that they assumed I was looking in their medicine cabinet. And I, I guess I, as an adult, I just cannot relate to snooper behavior.
2: Um, uh, I, I agree with, with all of those assessments. Um, I can't believe somebody would, would automatically assume and leap to that conclusion though. Maybe it's just, I, 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 I don't care. Or maybe it's just that I never have parties at my own house and, and I haven't been to see any other people in the last nine or 10 months, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I miss those encounters basically is what I'm trying to say.
1: So you have kids. Do you, when you hire a babysitter, first of all, how much is in an hour now for a babysitter?
2: Um, in our neck of the woods, it's roughly 20 bucks an hour.
1: Damn. And do you assume that they're probably looking through your stuff?
2: Um. Yeah, I guess so, but um uh I don't know. Um I guess I don't have very much that <laughs> that I'm uh really concerned about hiding, I guess. But yeah, I, I, assume, I, I assume they do that. We they like they're um uh really close with us and they're great people.
1: Okay, great. How old are they? Uh
2: I honestly don't know because I've never asked, but I would guess uh early 30s. Early mid 30s.
1: Oh, okay. But we're not talking like teens, no. yeah? Cuz <laughs> teens Really ransack your place.
2: No, no, not teens.
1: So, Sarah tells James that up until now, she's mostly done white collar crime cases, but that's why she's, you know, that's not why she became the DA. She has big career goals for herself. And a lot of the cases that she wants to do that will take her to the next level, they're usually given to the bright boys. And there's no tougher case than this right now. So, this is what she needs to do. And they get to her house. He's driving her home, and he invites himself in for a drink. And she's like, okay, fine. One drink. And I will say that this was the only time in the entire film that I thought maybe there was some sort of flirtation happening.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's a, it, it's, just a weird dynamic. I mean, I, I guess I got to ask, um, if, if you, Miles, were thinking of sort of the prequel to this movie, what happened in the let's say three to six months before the events of these couple of days happened to this woman that sent her on this path. Cause she, cause to your point, she was like educated, um, very career driven, seemed to know like where her North star was, but, but had to change things up radically for some reason.
1: I feel like a lot of juicy shit, came across her desk and every time she tried to pursue something it went to some guy in the office like that
2: totally yep
1: that's not a movie but that's definitely probably the reality of what happened is like she's just been patiently waiting to get to the next level and this is the first thing she could see herself sliding into organically
2: um that, that's a great point. Um, and, I, and I agree with you about the workplace environment that she must have been dealing with, with a lot of uh, uh, old school, um, close minded, sort of pig headed dudes at the uh, at the D.A.'s office.
1: Right. Like she probably was like the first drafted out of everyone from law school. And then all of these guys that she knew in law school that were worse students than her and they were always fucking off, that didn't really care about stuff they all got hired with her and were promoted much faster and somehow yeah. this shining star is just rotting away at her desk reading over papers
2: yep at her government job you know and the those young those people who are worse in her law class went to private firms and now they're all partners and they're just making bank
1: totally so he comes in for a drink her house is massive and dumbass me is sitting here thinking that, wow, the DA must really be balling out because <laughs> I assumed that this was just her place, right? And she asked him what he wants to drink and he says he doesn't drink. And that's when I say, I want to know more because it's kind of crazy to me that James does not drink. He doesn't indulge, especially for a detective, especially for a guy who seems to have seen as much as he has. And We'll find out why that might make some sense, but I wonder if he's never touched the stuff or if he's maybe like a dry drunk, I'm getting dry drunk vibes from him.
2: Well, you're right that um, this caught my ear too. And, you know, you're thinking about, okay, this guy, this guy, our boy, Tony, he's got some sort of strong ish New York accent, maybe like Queens, maybe Brooklyn, maybe somewhere in between kind of a little Tony, Tony Danza ish. Anyway, he's this New York dude who for some reason now lives in L.A. and is a detective and is numb to uh, bodies being autopsied right in front of him. How does this guy not drink? But we we, we learn in a few moments why.
1: I guess this is why. But I'm also going to float that being a New York kid, I mean, those guys move at a totally different pace. It's actually unbelievable. How many people I've met that are like, oh yeah, I got sober at eighteen, <laughs> and then you're like, well, where did you grow up, Manhattan? Oh, okay, so you lived like a whole ass life. It takes a lot of people to get fifty years to by the time you were eighteen. So maybe I'm sober.
2: But this guy, you know, if you think about like where he came from, uh, Lieutenant Frank here, you know, again, he has a strong recognizable New York accent. So clearly he grew up uh, in in the city somewhere. And at some point he decided, being a blue-collar guy, I'm guessing, maybe he had other police in his family. Maybe his dad was a sergeant. I don't know. But um, uh, for some reason, he left his home, left his family, and moved all the way across the country to the West Coast, to LA, to uh, the City of Angels, to a den of iniquity. Why did he leave his family behind?
1: I mean, maybe it's because of what we're coming up on in a moment. So (laughs) (laughs) that she, you know, took some time to research him and she didn't peg him for a college type. Maybe he did go to Occidental or something. I could see him going to college out in L.A. Um, And she notes that he's a big snoop because he's picking up like trinket boxes and he's obviously taking in what's on every shelf in the house, which at that point, It almost seems like a nervous habit, if I'm being honest with you. And Sarah mentions that his file also said he was married. And he gets quiet for the first time. He tells her that two years ago, on August 3rd, she left at 10 a.m. She was going to the grocery store just a few blocks away, but she never made it. A doctor in a Rolls Royce, who was up all night drinking with his girlfriend, ran a red light going 80. He walked away. She didn't. So he's a widower.
2: Uh, I, I was crushed. Um, it, it took my breath away, and it explained all the choices that, that had come before.
1: Right, exactly. I, I. It would be nice if he went sober once his wife got killed by a drunk driver. I don't think that would do it for me because I would be like, no, like I don't identify with that guy in the Rolls Royce. I'm going. I'm going with he blew it out in in high school. And he got sober, went to college at Occidental, and became a detective. That's my <laughs>
2: um, yeah. And you know the 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 tragedy of it going to the grocery store to provide for the family um, that just weighs in. And again, another great detail that could have not been written that way, but it was, and I appreciate it.
1: I view that as being like in Brentwood at the Vicente Foods there for some reason. It's like a little family grocery store. I hope they made it through all this. But yeah, he says it's late first thing in the morning. He's going to send her the financial records from the, to the hall of justice. So hopefully she can find something in there. So she's doing paperwork again, but right before he walks out, Sarah's dad appears and he's old, he's in his bathrobe and she introduces them. And James is like, well, you got a lovely daughter and he leaves. And at this point, I assume that the dad might be maybe senile or something. Because he asked her, you know, oh, are you bringing your work home with you these days? And she's like, it's just work. And he's like, well, I hope that's all it is. And it's such a strange interaction and and sort of like below the radar in a lot of ways that I almost assumed that they were hinting towards him being senile. And maybe even part of me still believed that this was her house and he was just living with her.
2: Yeah, it it, it was um, uh, an interesting scene on uh, <laughs> on a lot of levels, and yeah, I just think that that um, that guy it, it was a weirdly slut shamey kind of way that he said that about you bringing your work home with you. That I don't know that it made sense to me from a father daughter perspective, but um, then again, this guy was clearly well to do. Um, made a lot of money in LA. I'm guessing, you know, to your point, he was old. He was probably in his 70s or 80s, which means he probably made his money in the 30s or 40s in LA. So he'd probably seen some weird stuff, some Chinatown level kind of gangster shit going on and um, knew some things.
1: For sure. So Grace and Valentine meet up with a guy in what I would call a mansion. We're going to. I guess our movie's version of someone I believe you introduced me to Jason gummy bear Davis. Um, <laughs> this man, Larry is like, I believe actively trying to give himself a heart attack. He has this spread of bacon and eggs and toast and all sorts of breakfast crap. And he's eating it in such an aggressive manner that I'm not even sure he's chewing.
2: Um, was that all breakfast stuff? Were those ribs? It seems like he had like barbecue sauce on his lips.
1: I thought he had bacon and eggs with like some sort of ketchup or something, maybe.
2: Maybe it was a hot sauce kind of material, but he definitely had sauce of some sort on his lips.
1: Yeah, I might be projecting because I, I love bacon and eggs. Who knows?
2: Did you recognize the actor who played this guy? No. Oh, really? Okay, so this dude um, is kind of a, a famous cult actor. His name's Walter Okowitz. And he's probably best known for he was in Twin Peaks uh, right. in, the, in the original series. He was Jacques Renault, who was this uh, French dude who was uh, sort of the pimp for Laura Palmer, uh, the famous Laura Palmer at the center of Twin Peaks, of course. And anyway, this dude is a classic scumbag. Um, and he plays, again, sort of a very similar underworldly pimp kind of type, uh, also in Twin Peaks.
1: And for people who listen to this podcast, you might know him as Dougie Boudreau from Grace Under Fire, because you'll be surprised <laughs> yes. what people call me out for not knowing. They'll be like, Duh Mals, Grace Under Fire, and <laughs> i like get a DM. That- no, you're right. I mean, we all know I'm an idiot. Half the time when I'm like, oh, she was on a soap, it's for you guys. I do it for you. So let's play this scene. He's wearing a An Adidas tracksuit at a marble table. It couldn't be more perfect. Thirty thirty-eight to thirty-one fifty-five.
0: So listen, Lenny. I think we better establish some ground rules here because we intend to sell to the highest bidder. Don't suppose you'd like to tell me just who's going to be doing all this uh, bidding?
3: Well, for starters, you.
0: I say that all the time
3: you'll be bidding against the two interested parties Lenny
0: so you can afford to bid high I mean once you get the tape you can uh, collect from both sides right I mean Lenny a man with your skills of persuasion you're gonna make a fortune so you wait and you squeeze the marks and you hold up for the top dollar I get to see the people on the tape face to face no, no, uh, the, uh, the parties are probably going to send representatives, but we're all going to be there in that room for the same purpose. All right, now I'll tell you my ground rules, Grace. First of all, the meeting happens here in my house. See, I don't like going anywhere where I... I don't know where I am. Second, there's a cost.
5: Use of the hall. 10% of your take. See, the way I see it,
0: you're using me to jack the price up, so... For some reason, I don't get the tape. Well... I want to roll something on the downside.
1: I don't like to go anywhere where I don't know where I am. It's such an interesting way to confess anxiety.
2: Um, another incredible line. Um, this is like almost like some hard-boiled pulp Philip Marlowe shit. This is some good writing and uh just just an excellent line. And also, I think, um, an excellent performance by this actor. I I believe this character 100%. What do you think?
1: I 100% believe him. Okay, so to just not leave anyone hanging, it's like a tray of scrambled eggs, a tray of bacon, melon, some sort of croissant. There's hash browns, a glass of whole milk, and a glass of orange juice.
2: I I would kill that at a Vegas buffet right now.
1: It sounds so good, right? And, you know, they're trying to let us know this is what he wakes up to every day. This man is like the boss. This is who you go to if you need anything done. Larry has so much money. I don't know where it really comes from, though, because it's difficult to start a crime boss career if you don't also have some money. It's always like the, the bad seed in a family that goes off and builds out these sort of empires.
2: You, um, you you can't start those things purely from scratch. You need a little seed money.
1: For sure. Um, so the setup here is pretty clear, right? So um, James arrives at the station and Portis grabs him a cup of coffee. And this is a moment where I really sort of understood what Lucy and James's relationship is really like. Because she says Mickey checks out clean. Eight people say that he was there that night. And she sort of like runs her hands through his hair, almost like she views him like her younger brother that she knows is so handsome.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: And it, otherwise it would be completely inappropriate. If it wasn't for that basketball tickets line, I'd be like, what the hell is going on here? It's like a madhouse in here. You can't just like run your, what do you, do you think you work at Gawker Media? You can just touch your coworker <laughs> <there> like that. <laughs> James is doubtful because a hundred dollars buys you a lot of friends when beer is 80 cents a draft.
2: I heard that line. um, And much like you did, I wrote it down. I circled it. um, 80 cents a draft. Can you remember though? That's, that's a great deal. What is a pint these days? Um, I haven't been to a bar in a long time, but I'm guessing it's gotta be six 57 bucks a pint out here in New York.
1: Are we talking Bud Light or are we talking like a, a craft beer,
2: probably something that says "step up" from Bud Light, but not quite um, uh, a really hard to get draft.
1: Four or five bucks.
2: Those are probably like, those are probably like nine bucks. Those hard to get
1: ones. Yeah, four or five bucks, probably. Um... Yeah, this is I mean, it's insane. And and now that I look back, it's like it makes me wish that I went to college in the 80s so bad because I feel like they could, it was just easier to run beer specials like that. And also health codes weren't so crazy. Like I knew that at Marianne's like the Boston College Bar, I knew that they were recycling the cups a lot. That was definitely like a known thing. But beers were still like two, three bucks. Dollar drafts were like a huge like that would bring people out majorly is dollar drafts.
2: The, 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 the biggest night at um, my college, I went to um, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, there was a place called Touchdown Cafe. And on Tuesday nights, they would have dollar pitchers. And that was a big night. Uh, you go, you line up early, you get in line, you make sure you get a table and you drink, you know, seven or eight pitchers for uh, 15, 20 bucks with tip included.
1: That's nuts. It's nuts to think about. It. And I mean, you obviously, I think your prices are even more steep in New York than they are here, but it's um it's really interesting. I spend a lot of time on Reddit of all places and what I, where I think 50 bucks will take you in this world is so different than most of the country. Like, I've wound <laughs> up in so many conversations where I'm like $50, that's it. And people are like $50, like you could you could spend a weekend on that. Like you could leave town for a weekend with 50 bucks. And I just don't operate from that place. I, I, I can't imagine the freedom that existed in the eighties that I wish I had experienced.
2: No, totally. We get pizza every Friday night here at my house and we get, um, one cheese pizza for the kids. Cause they don't eat pizza with anything. My wife and I get a pizza with like two ingredients and, um, uh, that's basically it. We usually get one other slice for something, and it's fifty bucks with delivery every week just for that
1: for sure yeah for sure. What are your toppings dude?
2: Um, <laughs> uh, we get they have a really really good tomato pizza so fresh tomato um, nice slices that sort of sit right on top with a little bit of uh, uh, some nice green uh, green elements to the pie It's great it's incredible.
1: That's delicious. Yeah, I am so jealous of your pizza situation. Are all those dollar slice places shut down right now?
2: I I, I would assume so. I have only been to Manhattan once uh, since the early part of March. Uh, And the day that I was in there was to quickly go to work for something. But um, I would imagine most of those places are closed. The day that I went in, it was a a, a total ghost town. I walked like seven or eight blocks up uh, Sixth Avenue. Um, Right in midtown Manhattan, I saw like one or two people. There was nobody there. It was so, so weird.
1: It's so bad right now, dude. Like here, they keep like having to slap away our privileges. Like some small privilege will get back. And it really is like having bad kids in your class where, you know, the teacher is telling you, you guys aren't going to get recess. And then there's (laughs) that one kid that's like, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm fucking doing. And then no one gets recess. It's the fucking worst. And by the way, recess is also the teacher's lunchtime. So no one enjoys this punishment. It's like, on, it's, honestly, LA is really fucked right now. One in 140 people apparently have COVID in LA County.
2: Which, uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it's a bad situation right now.
1: I do live in Glendale where I feel no one comes in and no one goes out. So I have a little bit of a, I feel a little bit safer, but I only go one place every week and that's my chiropractor and I come right home just hoping I can someday see my family again, which is like not something I ever thought I would say. Like I'm just dying to go see my family.
2: (laughs) Have you seen your mom this year?
1: I have not. I haven't seen my mom because Wags was sick last year. So last Christmas I couldn't leave. So I haven't seen my mom since like two Aprils ago.
2: Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, I know how close I know how close you two are, um, Sean. Yeah, um, she's great. Um, uh, yeah, I haven't seen my folks since last Christmas. Um, this is hard for everybody this time.
1: For real. So he asked if because um, okay, so Lucy's cute, right? Because he shoots this thing down. He's like, oh well, there's probably a lot of people who will lie over an eighty cent draft. Lucy rolls her eyes. You sort of get the dynamic that he is insatiable when it comes to this stuff. And he asked if the crime lab found Fells Prince at Connie's place yet. And Polaris says that they were able to find a cleaning lady, though, who could write, like, say, basically, she's his alibi. So Portis did background on Earl. He's worked with Deborah since he got out of jail. But before that, he was a heavyweight contender. He had an amazing record, but it all ended when he killed a guy in a bar fight. (laughs) I mean, so uh, the detective comes in, another detective comes in, by the way, this guy's name is Hollis. And I feel so bad because he is one of the only other POC people in this entire movie. And they didn't give him a name until like the second to last scene. This guy had a lot of time on screen with no name, which is like my biggest pet peeve in these movies.
2: Um, uh, You're correct. And he does a fine job that the actor in this role, I think he does a a nice job with, um, Uh, a a part here, for sure. I wish it was a bigger part.
1: Yeah, he would be my friend in the office. I can tell that right away. So (laughs) he tells James the deputy deputy chief is there and he wants to meet with him in the captain's office 10 minutes ago, which, that's not good for my anxiety. I would just never show up if I found out that two people that are in charge of me were waiting on me. I wouldn't show up. So... (laughs) The deputy chief tells the captain that they're taking a lot of heat right now on this case. The newspaper ran a blind that six people on the police force had an orgy with, quote, the dead hooker. No one talks to a reporter without him in the room moving forward. Dude, a blind item, he said.
2: (laughs) A blind item. Um, uh, Again, great details. Love this movie. This is so good. I, I, I did a good job of picking a good movie, don't you think?
1: I think you did a really good job. Do you think it was Enti? Uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: it, it probably was NT. I, I, yeah. I don't think it was.
1: So the chief assures him that the Hollywood division has the best clearance rate in this city. They'll get this did, guy. Did
2: you half. know, but by the way, Miles, let me interrupt for a quick second. Did you know that I had lunch? Do you know how I, I had lunch with NT one time when I came out to visit you guys in LA?
1: Of course I didn't know that. And it's so funny because... And and I follow each other on Twitter now. And he asked me to be on his podcast. And I was like, Oh, I don't think I can do that. Because I'm so afraid of his regular commenters. Like I was like, Trisha 88 is going to come for me. <laughs> like, I was like, I can't do your podcast, Andy. And now I regret it more than everything. So you've met the man, the myth, the legend.
2: I met NT, uh, yeah, I think it was, um, either late 2007 or early 2008. Um, we went out to lunch, uh, and yeah, it was early days of NT and, uh, it's great to see him still doing, uh, fantastic items.
1: Yeah. So if you guys aren't familiar, Crazy Days and Nights, it's like the blind item website. Whenever I talk about blind items, I'm probably talking about Crazy Days and Nights. And he has been up for a very long time. Very loyal following. Um, I would say oh, Rich, OG uh, Richard, blogger. Rushfield. Yeah, Richard Rushfield um, is in touch with N.D. And like the whole him thing that happened is crazy. Do you know that the, the story behind him?
2: Uh, I, I don't, I don't know that story. No, I've I missed that detail.
1: So the hymns, it was like H I M M M M four M's, right? A lot of people assumed that this guy who would write in, and he had some real deep cut Hollywood blinds, like going back to like Marilyn Monroe. Okay, and a lot of people assumed the hymns were. Robert Downey Jr. I do know
2: the story. Yes, you're right. Okay, thank you for reminding me. I I remember this.
1: And then him wound up to be so sadly a schizophrenic man who lived in like Appalachia, I believed. And once he passed away, his sister found his accounts and realized what he had done, and emailed Enti and said, "Like, I'm so sorry. Like, my brother." was doing this i didn't know
2: whoa i did not know the twist of that story that's incredible i need a 30 for 30 on that
1: i no for sure a 30 (laughs) for 30 (laughs) i need like a 60 for 60 at least so (laughs) the chief assures him that the hollywood division has the best clearance rate in the city and they'll get this guy in time and the deputy chief says that they need an arrest now Um, And James is like, you know, kind of like fucking around. He's like, yeah, should we cuff Mickey and parade him around for the news? And the deputy chief is like, listen, thinking about taking this case downtown, I can assign a much larger task force to it. And the captain tells him, please give me 48 hours. We've already got someone undercover. And the deputy chief agrees. "Okay, 48 hours and that's it. And then James asks the captain, like, what the fuck is that? You're lying to the brass now. And he's like, no, we just need Lucy to go undercover. And he's like, but she's never done any sort of undercover work before. Captain's like, listen, she's a fresh face. It could work. Make it happen. So Lucy has been thrown in to do undercover work, which is such a dream of mine. If I was anywhere near cool enough to do it, that would totally be my dream.
2: I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, it's It's just not in my DNA to be an undercover person. I am... Uh, pretty straightforward. My emotions, in in I think, largely uh, a, a negative way. <laughs> it's really easy. I don't have a good poker face. I would not be good undercover.
1: So they put her in this big red wig, and she's wearing a bright blue jumpsuit with coral lipstick. And you know, she's taking in this new identity, and it's just absolutely absurd to her. She's supposed to be this woman named Blossom Willie, who is a sex worker in Kansas, who was a Jane Doe. And she had a $200 habit a day of heroin. And she OD'd finally. And the police are holding back on letting the press release out about it, or rather the press report about it, um, so that she can use this identity, which I didn't know that's where they came from.
2: Um, I, that, that was a good detail in this movie. Um, $200 a day, that is, um, by my rough math, um, 200 drafts a day. I'd rather drink two hundred beers, I think, than um, get smacked out for a whole day, especially at that price. What do you think?
1: Uh, Yeah, for sure. But like, what's the inflation on that? Because that's when it'll really hit. Like two hundred bucks a day to me right now is that seems unmanageable. Um, but two hundred dollars,
2: two hundred dollars a day in nineteen eighty nine dollars. Um, if if again, if you go by the math of uh a a beer costs less than a dollar when a beer we think costs six or seven bucks a day. Um what's that? Uh $1800 a day? That's that's a pretty healthy habit, huh?
1: Yeah, that's for real. Oh, it's $419.98. If your dealer takes pennies. But Yeah, that's a serious habit. It's also it's always hard for me to believe too when people have built up that tolerance, especially in 1989. I don't know if you guys were in fentanyl land yet or not, but That's pretty intense if you're ODing on a $400 heroin habit a day.
2: Yeah, um, it's unfortunate. But um, this actress who uh, attempts to pull off this role, you're right, she's less than confident in her persona.
1: So James wants her to go down to Deborah's office and apply. And he tells her on the way out, shake it, but don't break it. And that's going to take on a whole new meeting because we see Lucy walking through town. I'm assuming Beverly Hills in her get up on the way to Deborah's office. I love this jumpsuit, by the way, in motion. I loved what she was wearing. And she's crossing the street when out of nowhere, a car comes speeding at her. And by that, I mean, literally at her like this is a car that is 100% meant for her. She gets hit and goes flying through the air, her body hits the pavement hard. And they sold this to me for even like, Lifetime, they're so bad at it normally. Like every dead body sort of winds up in that standard, like one arm up, one arm down, legs splayed. They they had this body hit the ground in a way I've never seen before. She hit it like a little walnut. She was all bunched up.
2: Uh, again, our boy, Noel Nossak, the director, great stunt here. A, a legitimately a good stunt, to your point. Um, it runs in slow mo, which is great. There is a black Trans Am just just carrying down the street going super fast and interesting detail here in the script um uh, later when they describe what happened in this awful incident uh they say the car was going 80 miles an hour at least which coincidentally is the same speed as lieutenant frank's wife was hit when she died going to the grocery store so i thought that was parallel right
1: I'm so glad you caught that because same, I was like, oh my God, is this all related? Apparently, according to James, he says that in the report that she broke every bone in her body.
2: And I believe it with that stunt. So this was not, um, to your point earlier, not a dummy. This was a real person and it was a really, really good stunt. And during the stunt, the shoe of the stunt person comes flying off in the air. And so when they do the insert shot, insert shot later where they actually show the actress crumpled up on the ground, her shoe is also off. Great job by the continuity editor.
1: 100%. Like, if this was today's lifetime, that would have never happened. No
2: way. So Detail.
1: This was obviously, you know, he calls it, this is a warning shot. Stay away. So, Portis says that he messengered Connie's address book over to Professor Barkins at USC, who deciphered the code. She has guys listed as chicken legs, big boy, diaper man, baby doll.
2: <laughs> uh, well, well, I love I, it. You know, though, early that the guy in, in the first scene of the movie who died was, uh, he, he or before the movie even takes place, he was found with his diapers on. So, that's probably Do diaper man, think- right?
1: Well, I mean, I that begs a much bigger question. How many diaper men do you think there are out there? Because I feel like there's a lot.
2: There's probably a lot, but I, all of these things were related. So they're probably coming from one black book. So I would think that it's related. I think it's the same diaper man. That's what leads me to that like line of thought.
1: So I suspect based on your neutral comments about Lindsey Graham that you might not be able to discuss politics but i well i don't think this is political do you believe the rumors that trump wears a diaper
2: uh i do not believe those rumors no um i I just think there's a lot of crazy stuff going on uh as far as all that stuff is related um i don't know it's it's it there's just a lot of bad stuff floating around right now on all sides of the fence
1: fair So there's no numbers in the book for any of them. They used to call in and leave messages on her answering machine. So James is going to see Judge Draker. He he wants a warrant to tear up Deborah's agency. And Portis says that he should get one for her house, too. molly has gone, he wants Portis to focus on getting in touch with the weirdos in her address book. So, you know, there's a lot of kink shaming, a lot of negativity in here. You know, Diaper Man might not be a weirdo, believe it or not.
2: He, he might not be. But again, I think it's the same deceased guy that we were talking about from uh, early on in the movie. But you're right. We, we should not kink shame Diaper Man. Uh, if, that, if that's what makes him happy, uh, more power to him.
1: Yeah. It, chicken legs, that's out of his control, you know? So- the judge tells James that he can't give him the warrant. He doesn't have probable cause and he needs a legitimate reason to search her office. How can he tie Deborah Taft to the killing of Lucy Delgado? And James says that he can't yet, but that he believes Deborah might control access to the safe houses. And the judge says that's speculation at this point, And he's already taken up too much of his time with this, which I have a hard time believing that James can't take no for an answer on that because he too is someone who can poke a hole in any story.
2: Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but this is this is a good spot of plot development here. I, I, we're, in, we're in good hands right now.
1: So James tells him he's not listening to him. He hopes nothing comes up that will change his opinion of him. And he's like, are you fucking threatening me? And he's like, you're a judge. You decide. Great line. great line so Valentine watches on as Grace calls all these potential bidders and he tells someone that tonight's the night Larry's living room there won't be another opportunity to buy back the tape we see a receptionist talking to her boss on the phone and she says that she got the call the guy wouldn't leave his name he wanted him to tell him at midnight and then we see this like young preppy guy he looks like every guy that probably went to school with JFK Jr back in the day and did coke in the 80s like sort of like you know polo shirt yuppie type guy he gets a call and he has this whole briefcase full of money so we know it's on tonight at Larry's and oh my god how fun would that be to go to an auction for a sex tape
2: it would be an incredible experience you know this this role um uh by this young preppy dude that you're talking about Seems like a guy who recently got his MBA, he's working at a firm, Uh, one of the partners asked him to do something. He knows uh, it's going to be, one, a great story he can tell all of his friends. And two, it's going to help him sort of move up faster, the professional ladder. Um, Just a great detail. And again, really reminds me of like a Bud Fox type from Wall Street, a Charlie Sheen character.
1: You know, fuck the MTV Movie Awards. This is the kind of thing we should have been at back in the day.
2: <laughs> uh, we, If only.
1: <laughs> so um, Grace pulls up in a convertible to Larry's place and Valentine stays in the car. The guys are all watching the tape together, but it cuts off. And Larry's pissed because he got a taste and he wants more. And he's like, where's the rest, dude? And he's like, it's a partial tape, just enough to give the bitters a taste. And Larry is hungry. Okay, he got that taste and he's hungry. So he wants to start the bidding before the last guy even gets there. He throws out twenty K and Grace is like, Come on, dude, that's a little low. Then um Larry goes, It's cash or Peruvian flake. Yeah. Is that Coke?
2: Yes, for sure. Totally.
1: They have Coke in Peru.
2: Uh <laughs> Peruvian Flake. Um, absolutely. So, yeah, this dude, this uh this Larry character, Walter Okowitz, um, another parallel with his character in Twin Peaks, who's named Jacques Renault. Jacques Renault is also a Coke dealer who's moving uh moving White into the town Twin Peaks via Bobby Briggs, uh who is Laura Palmer's boyfriend. Um, another amazing parallel. This movie spawned so many great ideas. David Lynch also ripped off this movie.
1: You know, you would let me go on auditions from time to time because when I started doing the video... totally. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Auditions would come up from time to time. I auditioned for the lead in Greenberg, which is Greta Gerwig obviously did a much better job than Molly McAleer ever could. But obviously, you know, to this day, occasionally people will reach out to me and be like, oh, this seems like a Molly McAleer type character. And I... I am Molly malear and obviously I think I know what that means when people think of me for certain things but if I was going on auditions or getting called in for a coke dealer on the reg I would say that that would really affect my self-esteem <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, it was a it was a time it was a place but if you were a particularly um, uh, slobby uh, coke dealer who ate Lots of bacon and eggs in the morning, uh, whether you were in uh, uh, Los Angeles or somewhere north of Twin Peaks in Canada. Um, I don't know. That's a great role to be typecast in for a window of your career. And to both of our points, he was on Grace Under Fire. So he made lots of bank too.
1: So you were the one who told me about Gummy Bear in the first place. And I really? wanted. To, yes. I wanted to reach out to you when he passed away, but that thought flew out of my head the same way the one I had prior to this flew out of my head. And I was wondering how you, because I remember being like, who's Gummy Bear? And you were like, oh, you know, Gummy Bear. <laughs> and I didn't know who he was. How do you know who, who Gummy Bear is?
2: Um, I, I think it's just because it was my job to pay attention to stuff like that back in the day. And as I re- was, Gummy, Gummy Bear's name was J- Jason Davis, I think, right? Is that sound right?
1: Yes, cause his brothers he was, was, Brandon, he was Davis. Brandon
2: Davis's brother, and Brandon Davis was dating Lindsay Lohan um at the time yeah, Brandon
1: and he called and, her a fire crotch,
2: yeah, exactly. And Brandon and Jason were heirs to some sort of um maybe oil fortune or something. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, it's always wasted on people like that, don't you think?
2: Yeah, um too too bad. i'm 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 sorry that guy passed away
1: me too. So Hardy bids thirty k and then 37.5. And then Grace says that this is chump change. He isn't taking less than 100k. Then Larry bids 60. He has 30 seconds to say yes. And while all of this is going on, someone dressed in all black and in a mask is circling the room. Hardy bids 70k, Larry bids 80. And Hardy finally agrees, okay, 100k, I can do it right now. And Larry's like, well, I can match that and then some. But right then, the masked intruder comes in and bursts in, shoots everyone. But Grace manages to get out of the room just in time. So Valentine is smart. She's pulling away in his convertible right when he gets outside. He's kind of fucked, right? The mystery man inside takes the tape. And then we see James and Sarah arrive to the scene Cortis brings them inside, and we'll hear a short clip of Sarah in the car right after that. Let's play 4109 to 4348.
0: Right now, we got a morgue full of bodies. this keeps up, we're going to have to rent a refrigerator van just to handle the overload. Good old Lenny.
6: Who is he?
5: This was once Lenny Coles. Scam artist, extortionist, doper. This guy would sell anything to anyone. For a price. This bastard deserves it. Listen, Sarah, why don't you wait out by the car, okay? There's nothing for you to do here. Okay. Okay? Pete, hey, you wanna walk right to the car police?
6: Yeah, okay,
4: okay. So,
5: who's the
0: yuppie? This was Roger Hardy. All we got on him is a wallet and he doesn't come up on the computer. Strother's going through the home address looking for the next of kin.
5: I want the ID and those prints right away. James, figure Amazing Grace for tonight or for Connie Heck. Maybe both of them. Wrap it up in one neat package. He's mean enough. This guy do not figure.
4: Is anything yet?
6: James, I'm so sorry. I know it's totally unprofessional to throw up all over the scene of the crime.
0: Now listen, I really wouldn't mind killing you.
1: All right, so Miss Thing over here finds herself waking up in the back of this car after just puking, which is so relatable. And she's in the car with Grace. Okay? And Grace, of course, he he needs to get out of there. He hops into another car. This is L.A. It's not like you can take off on foot in Nichols Canyon. So he's like, I would kill you if I could. And he drives off with her in the car. And James comes out of the house just as this is happening. And he hops into an ambulance and drives it while Portis calls it in. So... I mean, the logistical element, I I have to say, I'm I'm much more keenly aware of health issues now, I think, as we all are as a nation. But we're in a a situation, a murder scene where they're going to have to be bringing in freezers, as they said, to hold all the bodies. And this man's taking the only ambulance with him.
2: Uh, yeah it's sad that um this this freezer body thing uh came full circle here in 2020 with uh uh the early part of the covid stuff it's it's just insane um one of the things that that sort of got me from the clip that you just played um was uh, the obituary for our, our buddy lenny um he was a scam artist an extortionist and a doper he deserved it
1: <laughs> they barely even they didn't even say one word about the stuffed lion that he died next to.
2: No, or his love of breakfast foods. Like y- you at least have to mix in one or two compliments even if someone is a pretty reprehensible person. It's just not a great obit.
1: Yeah, like he knew how to wear an Adidas tracksuit, something like that.
2: Yeah, his curls looked nice. I don't know, something.
1: So, she's completely helpless in the back seat. But she sees that James is chasing them now in the ambulance. It's obviously, you know, some sort of comfort. And Grace heads down the sleepy road in the hills, doing the best he can to lose James. And eventually he does. James is stopped by like a police barricade that was not meant for him. So James cruises around in the stolen ambulance. He never even gets like another police cruiser or something. He just stays in this ambulance, hoping to find any trace of his car. And finally, he spots it in a downtown car wash that's closed for the night. I wrote in my notes in the eyelashes part and hopefully <laughs> hopefully <laughs> anyone listening to this knows what I mean. What do you call those rubber things in a car wash that are like eyelashes?
2: Um I always call them big pieces of spaghetti.
1: There's that. Yeah, that you're from Michigan so you know a lot about cars, I feel.
2: <laughs> I don't know much about car washes or cars, but um you great Recall of a detail from so long ago that I'm from Michigan. You're the best, Miles.
1: <laughs> of course. So, Grace is confessing <laughs> to Sarah <laughs> while they're hiding out, and he says that he underestimated the market risk. He thought it was going to be easy money, but someone was playing Burn Your Buddy, and everyone in the room was dead. What's Burn Your Buddy?
2: um I <laughs> i don't know what that is, but um another detail I was just thinking about you remembering I was from Michigan was your college comedy troupe called Shovelhead?
1: Yeah, hello, shovelhead.
2: Yeah, see, um, great. You're the best. Some of
1: those some of those things are trapped in there forever, you know.
2: Yep, for real.
1: But I always liked people from Michigan. I feel like that's one of the good states to be from. Um,
2: Thanks. We uh, uh, helped with this last election.
1: Uh huh. For sure. I like have even committed to doing some tourism in every state that turned blue.
2: That's good news. Um, When you head to Michigan. Uh, remind me to uh, connect you to my brother. He'll gladly show you around Detroit.
1: Oh, I can't wait. That'll be the best day of my life. So I bet I actually am dying to meet your brother and I I would love to do this podcast with him. That would be a blast. Um, So she asked him where the tape is. Is it at a safe house? I still can't believe they're calling it safe houses. Did she get an address? And I'm like, Sarah, calm down. Like you're literally being held hostage and you're asking this man for an address that will like, blow the whole lid off this thing. And he's like, who the hell do you think you are? And I have to say, Grace, that's a fair question. So as things are getting more serious between Grace and Sarah, James is closing in on them, completely undetected until he steps on what seems to be like a loose hubcap or something. And Grace has a gun pointed at Sarah's head and is telling her to get out of the car when he spots James. And James is like, let her go. But he says, no way. This is all I got. And James uh, James offers to let him get away with it. He's like, "That's not good enough." So he shoots at him, but he misses. And James tells him, "Put your gun down. Don't mistake. Don't mistake me for the Sisters of Mercy," which seems like such an '80s thing to reference nuns. Like this was really before the Catholic Church got burnt up. So you could still reference nuns without there being like a heavier connotation to it, I feel.
2: (laughs) Uh, Sure. But this was also around the same era when uh, Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope on SML.
1: That is true. I think Sister Act bought us a lot of goodwill. (laughs) Indeed. So Grace spots the button to turn on the car wash and James gets caught up in those spinning brushes. Which I fell in love with the idea of people getting caught in a car wash as a comedy moment during it. Um, a movie called Menu for Murder, which was written by my favorite Lifetime movie writer, Dwayne Poole. Ooh. And it's fantastic. It's like Morgan Fairchild. It's like all of these fantastic 80s actresses and it's fully high camp. It's like unbelievable art. The movie's incredible. But they use this device getting caught up in a car wash. So funny. He gets thrown to the ground. Um, But finally, he emerges and he shoots Grace twice in the chest. Sarah lifts her head up for some reason at the end of this scene when she looks at him and she looks disappointed. And it's difficult to track why that look is. Is it acting? Is it direction? Is it a misunderstood thing? And it makes the way this movie goes make a lot more sense.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think part of it is um, uh, again, I love what you said earlier about not trying to uh, bash individual performances but I think it's part of why Lisa Hartman's career didn't really continue much past her phase when she was like really young and really, really hot. If that makes sense.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I think she did kill it as a snow owl on Mask Singer. By the way, my favorite show. <laughs> it's so good, Mark. Do you not love it?
2: Um, I've seen a couple apps because uh, uh, I think that my, we were watching Lego Masters on Fox, uh, and we saw a lot of promos for Masked Singer, and so my kids got into it. And so I've seen a couple episodes sort of by osmosis.
1: We would have been so horny for that show at Defamer. That that show would have been everything. Oh, for the sure. Reveals, like, it's unbelievable. So the deputy te- chief tells the captain that he's taking the case a day early. And um, he says that the police commissioner is pissed that the best witness they had is dead, which like fair. That is fair. And the captain that he was promised two days. But the deputy guy, he's like, no, you already blew it. They already lost Officer Delgado. We're out. So once he leaves, Sarah walks into the captain's office and says that she wants a word with him. She is free of James. This is an independent move she's going for. So we see James and Portis are catching up and Portis says that the Nichols Canyon shooting looks like it was done by a single shooter. Took out the wise guy and the yuppie and got out fast. No business card, but it looks like a, um, a a pro did the hit, right? So... They run into the other detective who we've seen, Hollis, and he says that the crime lab ran the tape box for Prince. Lenny Grace and Valentine's Prince were all on it. Valentine isn't home, but they've got people staked out at her place. And then they run into the chief and he tells James that he messed up big time. He blasted the material witness of two homicides. He's like, well, what was I supposed to do when a suspect pulls out a gun? Write a letter to the mayor deploring urban crime? Which It's kind of like, you know, it's a real fuck you answer. I liked it. And he tells them that he's taking the case and he excuses himself. So then Sarah and the captain tell James that they're moving forward with a new plan. She's going to go undercover. And he thinks this is insane. Rightfully so. I mean, they did just kill Lucy. She's inexperienced. If she dies, what are they, you know, what are they going to do to them? So she says that this is the best way to go. She's familiar with the case. She's an unknown face. She can go to Deborah Taft's agency for an interview and just see what happens. So James tells her that this isn't a bright boy move. Is bright boy an expression? Uh,
2: That one perplexed me, too. I'd never heard that before. But again, I think we do have to call once back to the writer. uh, What was his name? James something?
1: Stephen.
2: Stephen Zito. Steven Zito brought out a third act hooker turn, which, I mean, uh, if you can hear my applause through my AirPods, um, that's what I just did. A third act hooker turn. This movie is heading in the right direction.
1: It really is. And I think, honestly, now that I think about it, bright boy just means smart guy.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It wasn't an era-specific reference, I don't believe.
1: He had so many lines in here where I was just I I was like, oh, the reference must go over my head. But I think they're original to him. A bright boy move. That's great. So James tells Portis that he needs a new identity for Sarah, not the way they did with Lucy. They need to do this themselves. There's way too many people downtown and that allows for leaks. Great call. So he tells the other detective, Hollis, to call the Wayne State Jail ask for Rick Harkey to set up a bogus file for Sarah Ramsey. And then he tells Portis to call a seven-day detox center and ask for Harriet Curson, and tell her that he says hello and to set up a bogus file under the same fake name. Now, when he says, call the seven-day detox and tell Harriet I said hello, I was like, oh, is that what happened?
2: Yeah, there were definitely undertones, Um, I think you brought this up earlier, that um, uh, Lieutenant Frank was sober because his wife died in a drunk driving accident, but also because he might have, um, again, in another call-out to Basic Instincts, Nick, who, uh, as we all know, likes to fuck on coke. Um, <laughs> uh, this guy had some drug issues in the past, for sure.
1: Yeah. So then James calls someone named Lorna. And he needs her expertise. He's like, No one will know you're involved. I need you to do a job on a buttoned up DA and turn her into a $1,000 a night call girl. She'll have 24 hours to do the job. So then I think James and Sarah are in Santa Monica, and he gives her the rundown. She's just come in from Indiana and checked into this hotel. And he asks if it's too early in the day to count this as the worst day of his life. And Sarah's like, "What? I mean, come on, like, is this really worth it? And he says, listen, after what happened to Lucy, that was my fault. And Sarah's like, it's a hit and run. How could that possibly be your fault? And he says that whoever killed her, he's going to take them down. And that's the only way he's getting off this case. In the meanwhile, they're going to take care of her. They're headed into this hotel. When this older woman greets them, it's Lorna. He gives her a kiss on the cheek and he introduces her as mrs john richardson hannah which this is what makes me think this was a backdoor pilot if that makes sense
2: (laughs) pun intended with the the hooker theme
1: no i think that like (laughs) yes unintended um (laughs) i felt like this was a um this was supposed to be a pilot and or this was supposed to be a movie that led into a pilot the way 90210 did
2: or like Mulholland Drive was supposed to. Wait, really? Again, David Lynch. I'm pretty sure ripped this movie off.
1: But wait, was Mulholland Drive supposed to be a TV show?
2: Oh, absolutely! It was a it was an ABC show. Um, oh, and, I didn't and,
1: realize that.
2: Yeah, they yeah, shot. I knew
1: it was a TV show, but I thought it was like based on versus we're going to make a TV movie, get everyone hooked, and then be like t- tune in to the hour long show that's here every week.
2: No, yeah, it was it was um, originally supposed to be like a 90-minute pilot episode that would have aired over two hours as like the first episode, but ABC didn't pick it up. So Lynch got the financing from uh, Canal Plus over in uh, France to finish it off as a movie. You
1: got to be fucking with me, dog. Is that true?
2: No, true story, true story.
1: Yeah, I feel like backdoor pilots are such an underutilized in this industry that people can get so excited about like just give someone a two-hour pilot and then
2: Um, yeah what one of my friends this guy named nick natal is um uh doing a podcast all about backdoor pilots i will find the name and i will text it to you later
1: please and we will link that in the description of the show because i am obsessed with backdoor pilots i talk about them probably every week because you can tell that every Fifth Lifetime movie was supposed to be one, the way that they did with The Client List and Jennifer Love Hewitt.
2: Yes, totally.
1: So let's play this scene when Lorna is helping her, you know, become a real woman in the hotel room. Um, 54 minutes to fifty-five fifty-one.
6: Well, I don't think this is going to be hard at all. Why don't you just slip off your jacket? Okay. Let's see what you've got. I didn't really know what to bring, so I see you've never taken any fashion risks
5: Wanda's going to tell you everything you need to know I'll see you later
6: Where are you going?
5: Uh, lunch If you're a good girl, I'll bring you back a pastrami on rye
6: You owe me dinner at Le Grand Triomphe
5: That place too often, huh?
6: <laughs> Did you uh, really do this? Until I found something better? What's going to be expected of me? You're going to find yourself smiling a lot. After the small talk is over. The rest is negotiable. You can always say no. Of course, if you say no too often, you're out the door. Right now, I need to learn how to sell myself without... Right now, you need to get dressed for work. I wonder where James is with my pastrami sandwich. Sometimes I don't think he tells me all the truth what man does <laughs> you like him don't you I'm crazy about him it surprises me you know he's not at all my time that's right so go slow Sarah cops are high risk lovers it doesn't matter I don't think he likes me you're wrong there well it's definitely a different look it is listen what it all comes down to is what they're buying and what you're selling. It's all
1: a fantasy. Okay. Is it just me or was the sound in that terrible?
2: Um, you're correct. Um, the sound wasn't great uh, by any stretch.
1: Yeah. It like, it from scene to scene, it really varies. And I, I understand why, just from like my. I'm try to be very patient obviously cuz it's so easy to like make mistakes and and they are translating this from a totally different video format to digital so it there's going to be some stuff lost in the mix but um it really it's jarring when from scene to scene and then of course it, it provides like unintentional comedic moments when she's saying I really want a pastrami sandwich and it's like so clear Versus the whole rest of the scene. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of great. I did not know at all. And call me, you know, what I obviously am, which is like very dense and probably kind of a moron. I had no idea that these two were going this way. I mean, of course it makes sense, but it didn't. They didn't seem to have that sort of relationship to me.
2: Yeah, you're right. They um, definitely have more of a brother sister platonic kind of vibe between them and this uh this turn here in the third act um was not well set up or well choreographed by either the director or the writer or the actors frankly um (laughs) any of the three of those but it is pretty interesting and we're just getting up to this that you know this turn does happen you're right it's predictable in some way um but it's interesting that um it doesn't really uh her sex appeal doesn't really uh, really hit for Lieutenant Frank until she starts trusting up as a hooker. That's a, a, a semi-concerning part of this movie that doesn't get fully addressed.
1: I agree. It's like, yeah. like First of all, when Lorna tells her to take off her jacket so she can see what she's working with, she takes off her jacket and James is still there and he kind of like scoffs like, Oh, this like innocent girl doesn't even know what she's gotten into. How embarrassing that someone is checking out her figure. And I've definitely had guys sort of condescend to me in that way where I just didn't know what was going on. Like I was young and I didn't realize how ill-fitting that situation was for me. But it just was so skeezy. Like I couldn't I couldn't imagine how foolish I would feel if three years into a relationship with someone, they showed me a video of the first time they met me or they saw me as a, as a woman for the first time, I would be so humiliated. Like it's kind of mean the way he laughs at her.
2: Uh, I I agree. Um, It's mean. It's, it's an awkward thing from script directing, acting all sides And again, it gets me back to a little bit like what happened in the four or five days leading up to um, the plots of this movie um, with with our friend uh, Miss Dutton here that made her spiral so quickly. Because again, um, the start of this movie was just a couple of days ago, and she went from being a promising young DA to now she's an undercover hooker who's stripping off for her coworker. It's, it's It's a sad turn of events and a quick spiral.
1: God, she must be desperate or something. You'd think she'd have something to hide. So, um, John is <laughs> waiting out in the living room area in the hotel. He's trying to gnaw off the plastic from a side of like maybe macaroni salad or something. And he calls to Sarah, you know, your pastrami is getting cold. So, Sarah comes into the bedroom. And he, she's like, that was one long lunch. And we see what she's wearing for the first time. It's a tight black skirt and a bustier with a cropped blazer over it. And he starts to tell her that, yeah, it was a long day. And then he realized what she looks like and it takes his breath away. And she's like, do you think this will work? And he's like, it works for me. So he tells her to remind (laughs) him to tell Lorna she did a good job. And she asks him why he keeps everyone at such a distance. She couldn't help but notice that he keeps everyone at arm's length. And that's a great question and a great way to put it, right? So he's like, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you still live at home? <laughs> Which is fair. That's fair game, dude. Like, for sure. And she says that her father's alone and she feels obligated. She always felt the need to prove herself to him when she was growing up. She asks him why he's looking at her like that. And he says it's because she's beautiful. He says that ever since he met her, he finds himself thinking that he might be happy again. And then they kiss. So they do a close up on her feet.
4: As yeah. he's starting
1: to undress <laughs> her. And like, did you notice
2: that her pantyhose are all bunched up around her toes? Um, I I, I did. That was um, a weird shot that um, most certainly was a body double, um, but also was a a, a bit of a strategic error from our director front.
1: Yeah, it was unfortunate. And again, like, you know, it's it's difficult to blame something on a single person in a situation like this. Like it's almost like technically that's wardrobe's fault.
2: Uh, Yeah, I I don't blame Lisa Hartman's uh, feet.
1: So then the two, I I didn't write in the sex scene here because I remember being like, just fast forward. It's a good like two minute long thing, right? You get it. They bang. Was there anything interesting in there for you?
2: Yeah, there was one interesting thing in there for me, which was a lingering detail that they returned to twice. And it was like, uh, it was a shot of uh, her back and his hand uh, in a tight close-up. So you just sort of had like, knuckles fingers and back in the scene. And he's sort of like doing like a modified back rub kind of a thing, like scrunching, um, her back and her back muscles together, not in a massage way, but just sort of like in a grabby kind of a way. And they showed it twice and it was, um, it caught my eye.
1: Yeah. These are always so uncomfortable because there's only so far you can go with like a TV sex scene. And I mean, that's never been the main draw for me in any movie I've ever seen is like, I mean, Ed and I went to Fifty Shades of Grey together and we giggled throughout the entire thing. Like, it was the least interesting thing I've ever seen in my life. And meanwhile, these two women behind us were like, they're not married. And like about me and Ed. And we were like, oh, that's so true. Like, we're not married. Like, this does not apply to us. But I can't imagine ever going to a movie like that and being like, oh, yeah, this really does it for me. So Portis and Sarah and James are all going over her new identity with her. Her parents' names, her mom's maiden name, which comes up a lot, where and how she grew up. And she's having a hard time learning aspects of it. And Portis is getting really frustrated with her and he's not holding back. And, you know, Deborah apparently is sharp as a tack so she's not going to put up with any of her shit and under this new identity apparently one of the many things she did is time for soliciting so i don't know why that's such a universal thing i think maybe because a prison record is like you can't really fake that unless you have someone on the inside so maybe part of giving her a record is to have something that deborah cannot question no matter what basically
2: yeah I, I think so um this little part of the movie was uh, sort of a weak spot and this scene um sort of showed some of the limitations uh of lisa hartman as an actress and the rapport between the three of them um yeah it's not a great scene
1: <laughs> so john's kind of like barking at her too and sarah tells portis like the two of us need a minute And you know, Portis knows what's up, dude. Like, they never mention it, but you know, Portis knows, oh, James is up to his old tricks, right? Yeah, he, he gets it. The two of them talk, and this is, like, hard to watch just as a woman, because, like, you know, like, we do have that part of us. I think every woman does, and if she doesn't, like, congratulations where you make something out of almost nothing. And how can you not, especially if you're like hooking up with people at work, like how could you not read more into it than you should? That's why you can't shit where you eat, truly. And she's like, listen, I know last night wasn't supposed to change anything, but I, I was hoping that we would be at least civil. And he tells her to sit down. He says that they have a job to do, so he doesn't have time for small talk. And she asked him why he's being so mean. And he, is it because you're afraid? Which I'm like, oh girl, I don't think it's because he's afraid. (laughs) And he, he, she's like, is it because of what you feel? And he goes, no, it's because of what may happen to you. And obviously she wanted it to be about how he feels. So they're looking for a cop killer. They're not taking any chances with her. He said that last night was special to him. And, Suddenly, she's relieved. That's really all she wanted to hear. And again, I'm still a little stunned by this. It just seems so, they didn't build it up enough for me to believe there could have been more flirtation there, I guess is what I'm saying.
2: Um, Yeah, there could have and should have. And it does cast some weird aspersions on uh, Lieutenant Frank that um, all of a sudden he gets into someone who uh, I guess certainly is like conventionally attractive for sure. Um, But it's not until she dresses up as a hooker that he decides that he falls in love with her.
1: Totally. So then Sarah goes in for her interview. Portis is parked out front listening to everything. Of course, she has a wire on 101.26 to 102.37.
3: Taft Agency is a full service operation, Miss Ramsey. We have a select clientele. So we make sure our girls are matched up in the right situations. That's why I need to know what other kind of work you've done. So, what do you have to show me? Such as? Such as figure studies. James,
6: more volume. A letter of introduction. Recently, most of my contacts are private parties. But I don't think they'd like being called to discuss my on-the-job performance. Is there a history on you? Wayne State Jail. Seven-day detox in Acheron. I beat my habit. Mm.
3: Can you think of any reason why I should trust you? Why well, trust anyone? I don't. Right now I don't have a spot for you. So if you'll excuse me. Earl, would you come in here?
1: So she calls in Earl, which, you know, shit's about to go down. Earl, um, the next thing we see is we see an anonymous call go into the Wayne State Jail to talk uh, to somebody in the records. Right. So, oh, no, they're poking holes in that story. Sarah's smoking cigs in a pool chair and reading a book, which was the most relatable thing I've seen from her this whole movie, where I'm like, oh, good. You smoke cigs and you read books by the pool. Like, I totally can do that, too. Um, And John pays her a visit. She's scared that Deborah knew that she was there to cause trouble, but James says the whole thing was kind of a wash anyway. Nothing that she said would hold up in court. Then the phone rings in her room, and she answers it. And she tells James it's for him. Someone's calling long distance, which seems like it reminds me what an affair it was when someone used to call long distance back in the day. It's like getting a visit from the Pope. Yeah. So... He says that it's um, Ricky from the Wayne State Jail, and they got a call looking for her records. The call came in from headquarters, and they're going to look into it. Then the phone rings, and it's Deborah. And Sarah thinks that today must have been better than she thought. And he says, either that or they've mistaken you for a clay pigeon. She goes into the agency. You know, I like that they're playing up sort of her innocence here.
2: Yeah, um, she, she certainly... In a sense, she doesn't seem like um, a, a believable person who did some time in, in Wayne County Jail back in Detroit, um, for sure. But but the thing that I was thinking about during this like phone call exchange, so um, uh, again, her character's background is from the Detroit area. So that means that um, our buddy here, Deborah Lee, the hooker madam, uh, is calling somebody in Detroit which makes me think of Beverly Hills Cop, because Axel Foley was from Detroit, and this was 1989 or so, around the time of Beverly Hills Cop 2. I wonder if the the police departments of Axel Foley and Lieutenant James worked in the same department. What do you think?
1: Probably, yeah. I I actually think that that was stolen from this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I think a lot of people steal. Uh, I agree. Don't you think? I mean, how could they not? Also, you know, Lifetime, that's why I do this, is because we've all grown up with Lifetime, whether it is willingly or not. Like, everyone's mom used to watch this shit. Like, you go over to that weird neighbor's house and their mom is watching this shit and chain smoking cigs in the kitchen. Like, this is just, Lifetime is a rite of passage. It's been forced upon all of us. If you are lucky like me, you've taken it on as a habit. Lifetime is ever present. Like, I will never believe someone didn't originally see something in a Lifetime
2: movie. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. It's, it's done a lot for a whole generation, and may its legacy live for on and on and on uh, with Discovery Plus launching January 2021.
1: By the way, speaking of, I have to watch that KFC movie. This will oh, yeah. already have happened by the time that this airs, but I have to ask you, Grimbo. So, I feel like KFC was like, we're not going to put our money into the Super Bowl this year. So, what's another way we can spend our budget? Because this is an insane budget choice for them. Like, let's not act like KFC just has infinite resources. They probably have a lot. But this is like a major deal to produce a whole movie. Like, can you imagine what... Mario Lopez alone charges for a 15 minute commercial, probably not
2: cheap. No, seven figures for sure. Um, yeah, you no, think? I'm excited. I'm excited to watch it. Um, we're talking on Thursday night. It's coming out on Sunday. Um, I know that I have somebody reviewing it for me. I haven't seen it yet myself, but I'm psyched.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Do you Gr- really great great, great branded
2: content initiative.
1: It is. It is. I And I don't like the gimmicky stuff. I don't like it when Lifetime shows self-awareness at all, because I feel like that's what's special about it, is that it lives in this sort of strange world where we're not supposed to acknowledge how cheesy it is. And I like the idea of them taking themselves seriously. So when they did Deadly Adoption, I took great offense. I enjoyed it, but of course I was like, Lifetime, come on now. You can't just let these famous people with real careers walk in and shake things up. <laughs> Do you really think that Mario Lopez is netting a mill for that? Do I? Yeah.
2: Yes. I, I, I don't know, but I, I I would guess.
1: He has to be right.
2: I, I, I would guess for sure. Uh, they're and getting also, a lot, lot of legs out of it.
1: I feel like the choice to make Colonel Sanders Latinx is a little bit I feels weird to me. I'm not fully comfortable with it. There's something about it that seems false to me. And it's not just the fact that we know Colonel Sanders is an old dead white man. But it just it's like, why are like what is uh it, it feels like, I don't know, like they're trying to make the story something that's not.
2: Uh. I don't know if I totally agree with you, Malz, Um, but, but what I will say is that um, as a keen observer of pop culture, uh, KFC um, has been going through a lot of rebranding over the course of the last two decades. Obviously, they used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken, now they're KFC. They've been giving this Colonel Sanders role over to a wide swath of folks. I feel like a lot of comedians, wasn't Norm Macdonald? You Colonel know Sanders what, for so
1: right. I forgot, I forgot that that's a, a move. I thought that they had to change their name to KFC because they can't say chicken anymore. It's Correct. Not chicken.
2: So, so yeah, it looks like, um, uh, uh, Colonel Sanders has been Norm McDonald, Jim Gaffigan, Rob Riggle, uh, a couple of wrestlers, Jason Alexander. Um, but you're right. It looks like they're, they're finally, um, evolving into, uh more poc perspectives on the legend of colonel sanders so i for one applaud unbelievable.
1: that unbelievable i applaud so, it sarah goes into the agency let's play this scene for 104 21 to one hundred five thirty-eight. i think this is every young woman in la's dream
3: let's play this you know what they say about answered prayers
6: more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones Saint Teresa of Avia said
3: that I went to parochial schools. Saint Luke's K 36 six. I need to know who I'm dealing with. Don't suppose you want to tell me your mother's maiden name, Rourke. We dropped the O when we got off the boat.
5: Dropped the O. Where'd you get that? He gave me that. Oh, okay. I don't know about you,
3: Portis. We see ours. No tracks. The Detox Center did well
6: by you. You know, you've been nosing around in my life for a while now. You want to tell me what's in this for me?
3: I can build your career. I can make you rich. I can give you a golden parachute when you retire. I can find you a husband or a commune. Otherwise, when your looks and health go, you'll end up back on the streets, hooking sailors for quarters. Does
6: that mean I have the job?
3: That means you get an address.
1: All right. So, I mean, great point. Honestly, this is—if—if if I had to be a high-class call girl, that's the deal I'm looking for.
2: Yeah, you don't want to end up hooking sailors for quarters, um, especially when a beer costs only eighty cents. Um, you <laughs> right. got to work four times to get one beer. That's not a good rate for women.
1: Right, for sure. So then back at the hotel, John is giving Sarah shit for smoking. Like, why are you filling your lungs with chemicals, he asks. And he starts to wire her up. And she's staring at him while he does this with so much hope in her eyes. And she asks what Deborah expects from her tonight. What is she supposed to do? And he says that there's no way to know. Just stay a step ahead of the game. And if she needs them, they'll be there. He says, trust the wire, Sarah. It's your lifeline. So she's like, you did a really good job handling the wire. And he goes, well, you offer some wonderful places. And she says, you should know. You spent most of last night looking for them. And I'm like, give it up, Sarah. Like, he doesn't feel the same way that you do. Like, this is not going to do you any favors, my friend, is is just harping on the... He knows you guys banged last night. Like, he obviously doesn't care.
2: <laughs> um, you're right. He doesn't care. And something concerning about this to me, um, you know, to your point about uh, our, our buddy Lieutenant James criticizing her for smoking... Like, this is a guy who just banged her because she dressed up as a hooker, um, blew her off the next day at work, rattled her during a work meeting, is criticizing her for smoking. Are we sure that Lieutenant James' marriage um, didn't end by a suicide by his wife because she was trying to escape him because he's so controlling?
1: Or was he the drunk guy driving the rolls after a night of drinking with his girlfriend? I mean, I'm open to any interpretation of how that went.
2: This could go any way. You're right.
1: So the party that night, it's some real rich people shit. She's drinking champagne. We're seeing a ton of old men in suits. You know, this is like when you know Los Angeles is young, is like if this is the old money in town. And I've always felt that way about LA. Like even the, you know, old money by this town standards, it still has a shiny veneer on it that makes you know that all their money was earned in the last 60 years, which isn't a slight, but it kind of
2: is. Yeah, yeah but it, this is these are like the, the same people who were throwing Hollywood sex parties in LA Confidential, but they're still throwing them in the 80s, thir- 30 to 40 years later. Um, it, the, the wallpaper isn't great. The paint jobs aren't totally there. The artwork isn't as good as what we saw on the desk earlier in the movie. This is a depressing scene.
1: So then Valentine gets there and she comes in through the back door and one of the girls spots her and they're like, what are you doing here? Why are you coming in through the back door? She's like, I just need a couple hundred bucks. I'm low on money. The girl's like, you know, I don't have that kind of money. If you want that, like there's a girl downstairs, you know, you know, her. she always has a lot of cash. So we see Valentine put down this wicker basket that she has. And finally, I realize, oh, it's a fucking cat holder. Why? Because there's a cat in there. She's <laughs> brought this cat to a Hollywood party for some reason. So Earl approaches and he tells Sarah that there's someone inside that's interested in her. So he leads her inside to this older balding man who has a pretty woman by his side. And the woman takes Sarah by the hand and they go downstairs together. And he says, you know, if the evening goes well, I've been known to tip quite generously. So this downstairs of this party is something in LA that I've never seen but has to exist I mean these are the parties that people write about this is what I think that when all those conspiracy theorists who say that when they say everyone in Hollywood like drinks adrenochrome like this is what they're thinking of is these parties
2: yeah these are these are parties that are of legends for sure
1: so there's like you know, tons of semi-naked people running around. There's a guy getting beat up with a paddle. There's an underground pool room. There's just a lot going on. He leads her to a back room. One hundred nine forty-one to one hundred
0: ten twenty-eight. You are very beautiful. Thank you. I think you're going to enjoy tonight. And I hope it's true what they say. What's that? blondes are more fun
6: have more fun and I can vouch for that
0: I'm sure what is some getting her out of there? James, right now Sarah's the only shot we got she got us this far. let her play out a minute now I don't want you to complain about anything that I'm about to do
6: why would I complain? I'll be right back where are you going? let me surprise you
0: please do Good
2: girl.
1: Good girl. Good girl, he says. Disgusting.
2: Yeah, this guy's a real creep. And um, this sex party uh, certainly cannot hold its weight when compared to something like uh, what our buddy Tom Cruise did in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. That East Coast versus West Coast sex party thing, uh, there's never been a, a, a wider dichotomy between two things ever
1: our buddy tom cruise for sure so then sarah walks <laughs> down the hall and finds a room full of candles and she spots a place where she can ditch the wires right she wants to get rid of these wires and she is surprised when valentine comes in so james is going to come in in a moment and kick down the door one eleven o one to 112
3: Tina, hey you doing a solo sweetheart Hey, I know you. Yeah, you're right. You do. You were at my house a few days ago. You're, you're that DA. What? What are you doing here?
6: We didn't get what we needed.
5: What the hell is Valentine doing in there?
0: That's it. We just lost reception.
6: Valentine, I need that tape. Look, we can deal on this. Just the two of us. You've got to trust me. Where's the tape?
3: What's your offer?
4: <laughs> Got me. Huh? What's the matter, Sweetie? Huh? What's the matter? Huh? You don't like it?
5: Whatever you're thinking, forget it. You don't need the heartache. Let it go. I said let it go! Put your hands on the mantle and spread them.
0: Do it or I'll destroy you. James, it's me. Come on, sister, turn around. Hands on the mantle.
5: I'll find you sooner or later and punch the tip of your nose into your brain. Yeah, dream on, Earl. Dream on. What the hell happened to that wire?
6: You just blew my cover.
5: Hey, that might have to Turn around.
1: All right, so great music in this scene. That's my number one takeaway.
2: A-plus score.
1: But Valentine and Earl are now getting arrested. Valentine is very afraid of Earl, and rightfully so. Um, We don't really know what the situation is there yet, but one can assume that she's gotten into some sort of trouble with Deborah, right? So Valentine... Oh, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say you're absolutely right.
1: So Valentine's being booked at the station and she says that she has no right to be arrested. And Portis is like, you're an accessory to murder, James. And James is like, yeah, you lied to us about a number of things and ran for cover. They know that she was with Grace the night he died. And he asked her what she was doing in the safe house that night. And she tells them to book her or let her go. She's got better things to do with her life. So then John gives her a quarter and tells her to go call her lawyer. lawyer. Uh, she's on a no bail hold pretty serious stuff so james tells portis to get a warrant to go through the safe house and get some eyes on taft he also wants to run down to connie's brokerage statement so what's a what's a brokerage statement
2: uh maybe it has something to do with some of the bluffs he was trying to call earlier about uh getting her audited or something i'm guessing that's what it's got to do with
1: Yeah, it has to be some sort of financial form. He says he wants a record of all of her transactions for the last couple of years. And Portis is like, but Sarah already did that. And James says that he just needs to double check everything. And Portis is like, I feel like you're checking in on everyone. So now even Portis feels like his loyalty is being called into question. And he tells Sarah to come with him. She needs to go get her stuff from the hotel. And um, she's like, Well, I don't really know why you need to come if that's what we're doing. And he's like, You need to be de- debriefed. So once they're alone at the hotel, James questions her. 114.54 to 117.15. We're in the home stretch, you guys.
5: I have a couple of questions about tonight.
6: Can it wait?
5: What happened to the wire?
6: It slipped. You must be losing your touch.
5: No, that wire was on right. Why did you take it off?
6: That's a leading question, Lieutenant. If this was a courtroom, I'd object to the judge and I'd have you cited.
5: What happened to the wire?
6: James, you're making me nervous.
5: Tell me what happened with Valentine. Nothing. She recognized you. You talked. What did you talk about?
6: Valentine didn't tell me anything.
5: Valentine had $5,000 on her. The matron found it when we booked her.
6: What the hell are you doing? Detecting.
5: It doesn't add up, Sarah.
6: I'll tell you what doesn't add up. Last night you made love to me and tonight you're treating me like I'm a suspect. Remember me, James. I'm on your side. Are you?
5: You expecting a call? Thompson. huh Draker? Yeah, thanks. they all made bail.
6: You had to expect that
5: They cut Valentine loose too Who? A judge named Draker Do You ever work with him? No, why? Well, he's the same bastard who refused me a warrant To go through Deborah Lee's office You don't know him, huh?
6: No, I don't
5: I gotta get going Coming?
6: Maybe I should sit this one out. Is
5: that the way you want it?
6: That's the way it is.
1: This guy's not worth it.
2: He's way too controlling.
1: Way too controlling. It's insane. You're literally in a relationship with a cop, like in the worst way possible. I mean that in like a bad way, like truly a cop.
2: Yeah, a cop and a cop was on day four of this relationship.
1: Exactly. And by the way, not even claiming her, like she has to keep walking him into the fact like, Hey, remember me from last night, which by the way, the timing in this movie is wild. That yes. this is We're still technically on the first 48, right? So <laughs> once he's gone, Sarah reaches into her purse and takes out the tape. She has it. She's had it the whole time. She tucks it into her purse. So Earl is up in the hills with Valentine and he's manhandling her and he says he wants her to put a smile on his face. He wants the tape, the original, not the dupe that Grace was trying to peddle. So she's like, I don't have it anymore. But she knows who does. That lady, Sarah, the cop. And he's like, you gave it to a cop? And just then someone shoots and Valentine is taken out. He looks back and it was Deborah this whole time, dude. The fucking sniper is Deborah. She's an all black, and you know she has no mood, no look, no feeling on her face. She does this effortlessly.
2: But but here's the thing about Deborah. Um, Deborah is a stone cold fox. Um, we, we hinted at it at the top of this podcast, but um, this part is played by Jennifer O'Neill who was a big time like cover of Vogue model in the late seventies and early eighties. And malls has a tragic life. Do you want me to give you a brief summary of her real life? Jennifer.
1: Yeah.
2: At age 14, she attempted suicide with her mother's sleeping pills. Her parents only saw this as an attempt for attention. She woke up from a two week coma to find that the incident had shocked her body into getting her first period. What? She married her first husband at age 17 and had a daughter. During her first marriage, she checked herself into a mental hospital for electroshock therapy. Oh. O'Neill relates in her 1999 biography that it was only at age 24 with her second husband that she got her first orgasm. At age 34, O'Neill suffered a gunshot wound. Police in Bedford, New York, who interviewed the actress in her 25 room, 30 acre French style estate, say that she shot herself accidentally with her husband's revolver because she was trying to figure out if it was loaded. She has had seven husbands and she now lives, there's a happy ending to the story. She now lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her two sons, and where she can. At last, ride horses till her heart's content at her horse ranch called Glade.
1: Oh, God bless. I'm so happy she has that.
2: Did I blow your mind?
1: You did blow my mind. I don't believe that she accidentally shot herself.
2: Um, it I, seems I'm like uh, it was probably on purpose. That.
1: Oh, you think it was? on? Uh, okay, I thought her husband did it.
2: Well, she attempted suicide at 14, if you remember from the no, first I part know, of the story.
1: No, I remember. And
2: she, it wasn't until her second husband sh- that she had her first orgasm. So I think she's lived a tough life. Um, and also, I can only imagine the pressures of being uh, a 17 year old uh, high fashion model in the late 70s and early 80s and the um, uh, levels of intoxicants that were going through one system at that point in time.
1: Dude, I, don't want to derail us completely, but I do have to tell you a fact I learned yesterday that I never knew in all my years. I wonder if you know, this as a father. Okay. Cause you have two boys, right? Two boys. Okay. So apparently when a little girl is born, like a baby infant girl, sometimes they can take on their mom's hormones in the womb and they have to have their first period, and sometimes they lactate before two weeks old.
2: Whoa!
1: Uh, did you know that?
2: I- I've never heard that before. Um, what a fact! This is a great. This is a great podcast.
1: This blew my mind because, like, it's there's so many things about labor and childbirth for something that is so incredibly common that people don't know anything about. And I'm convinced that they hold these facts back to not horrify us so that people continue to reproduce because obviously it's like a one-time thing. You know what I mean? If your baby is two weeks old and for some reason it has a period, but I had no idea. And the babies can lactate. Like, of course it makes sense. The human body is a fucking horror show, but it's just, um, yeah, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that I made it this far in life without knowing that.
2: Um, one other thing about, um, uh, childbirth and pregnancy that I've learned with having a wife who's gone through it twice um, they always tell you nine months, but it's really 10 months.
1: Yeah, that's true. I only found that out like last year. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. It's a really interesting thing, dude. Um, okay, so moving forward. Um, <laughs> she, girl looks back at Deborah and is like, when does the killing stop? And she goes, when we get the tape. So she looks inside Valentine's purse and she finds Sarah's card. So now she knows her name. Okay. So Portis tells James that they got someone to look through Draker's calendar to see if Deborah or Earl had ever been on his docket. And James says that he knows Draker did this and that he wants to take him down today. They're on the crime scene of Valentine. Sorry, did I not say that? So then James spots a bullet on the ground. It's a nine millimeter. And he says, we're going to compare this to the other bullets. Portis says that all of this is getting so much worse. And um, he went through Connie's statements and she made half a million dollars in eight transfers over two years, all all in firms represented by George Dutton. Connie used to buy blocks of stock days before a hostile takeover, and she made a fortune. So Hollis comes over and says that he just got word who placed the call's checking on sarah's cover stories it was heller he used his own phone heller is the um the captain or not the captain what's it called yeah something he's like the deputy? captain
2: or the lieutenant or something like that
1: he's the uh he's the depth something deputy sorry i forgot the name anyway the three detectives approach them and heller's nervous they arrest him on the spot they take his weapon they decided to play it his way, arrest some guy and parade him around in front of the 11 o'clock news. Great callback, dude. He he's the one who yep. fingered Lucy Delgado and almost had Sarah killed. What does Deborah have on him? He killed a fucking police officer. So James starts wailing on him, but the other detectives pull him off. And then then we see James shows up at Sarah's place? He uses the door knocker. Did you see the way he knocked that door knocker?
2: Method acting.
1: He just kind of flipped it, dude. He was just sort of like, I'm not knocking this. I'm just going to flip it. So she answers the door. He is clearly so over this. This is like the very, this is it. This is what we all have been coming to. 121.17 to 125.14. Hi.
5: How long has Connie Hecht been blackmailing your father? Your father's name appears on so many letterheads. He sits on the symphony board. The governor invites him for Sunday supper. person who'd do a lot to save that. So tell me, Sarah, did he have Connie's killing farmed out or did he do it himself?
6: Connie Hecht had been blackmailing him for years.
5: Yeah, I know. Eight times he gave her advance information on acquisitions and mergers.
6: How did you find that out?
5: I had Porter's check into Connie's financial statements. What did you think you were doing, Sarah? Suppressing a little evidence? Obstructing a little justice? What?
6: I didn't know about Deborah Lee Taft or Earl. I never knew.
5: Okay, so after Connie was dead, who put the arm on your father then?
6: He didn't know. He got a call one evening at work and he was told that the tape had changed hands, that it was up for bidding.
5: So he sent little Roger Hardy over with a suitcase full of unmarked 100s.
6: James, when I saw Roger lying there... And what did you
5: expect to buy with the 5,000 you gave to Valentine?
6: My father's respect.
5: What for, Sarah? He damn near got you killed!
6: How long have you known?
5: I didn't know. I thought maybe you were protecting Fell or your own turf... I never expected you for this. I never expected it was this close to home. Just what the hell were you trying to accomplish?
6: I had every intention of helping you find the killer. I just had to get my hands on that tape. I thought I could do both. James, I know I've done a terrible thing, broken all the rules. But I swear I wasn't using you. Falling for you was an accident. What I felt for you just got in the way.
5: So you figure maybe I should apologize for falling in love with you.
6: Why didn't you tell me you loved me? Last night I came home and I went up to my room and I sat there until dawn. I couldn't decide what to do.
5: Do about what? The tape. Did you figure it out yet, Sarah? Sarah, don't say another word Not without a lawyer present We got a room full of lawyers Tell me How does a father like you Send your daughter into the gutter, huh? You're going to do two things From a young man First, spare me the sanctimonious twaddle Secondly, show me your warrant It's a bad move, Dutton You got maybe one slim hope here You help me out on this With some names, numbers, and dates. And maybe, just maybe, I can get you a deal. Listen, mister, do I look like I just fell off a turnip truck? I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to tell you how it is you keep away from me and my daughter. How long are you going to let him do your thinking for you, Sarah? Father, You keep out of this.
6: Was going to tell you.
5: Don't walk away from me. Don't you ever turn your back on the young lady.
1: Okay, so <laughs> listen, I typically understand every ounce of these movies, I know where it's coming from. I have flexed upon many a guest who has not been able to put together plot holes in a movie. I did not see this coming at all. It almost seemed like an alternate ending to me.
2: Uh, It it was crazy in that we've only met um, Sarah Dutton's dad the one time before, earlier in the movie, when uh, Lieutenant Frank comes over to her house for the first time. This guy is like um, played by an actor named John Anderson. 245 credits to his name. Um, Someone who got his first gig uh, in Hollywood way, way, way back in 1950. So this guy is a guy with gravitas. Um, But you're right. From a plot perspective, it totally comes out of nowhere. I I, I like this guy in this role. He's the kind of guy who probably slept with Jane Jane Mansfield in the 50s. Um, But he's still kicking around and dealing with weird sly hookers as late as 1989. Shout out to this guy for his uh, uh just parade of dealing with uh sleazy side of the world for fifty plus years.
1: Yeah, no, truly, God bless. Um, and also this is I don't know. I wish more movies were written like this because I have to be honest, I've watched this movie now two and a half times, and I did not pick up on any like even I I, I there it wasn't even in the acting, and maybe that's a you could view that as a slight on our lead actress but i actually think that they just it, it truly was a mystery i didn't see any like clues dropped at all except for at the very end when they were talking about connie's investments but i would have there's no way to put this together
2: um it was a b- bizarre financial turn in the last 30 minutes you know uh, as you noted earlier talking about brokerage statements and uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I I think they lost the thread a little bit here. Um, But while that clip was playing, I looked it up. So this movie premiered on February 4th, 1989. Uh, It was on channels 4, 36 and 39. Is 4 an NBC station in LA?
1: 4 is NBC, yes.
2: Um, Cool. Okay, so we know it debuted on uh, NBC then in February 89. And from the review in the Los Angeles Times, written by a critic named Don Shirley, um, this premiered during sweeps week. And it does say, Miles, I'm so proud of you. You nailed this. This is the last sentence of the review. Parents should make sure their kids have something else to do on Sunday night. You nailed it.
1: Oh, God damn it, baby. Hell yeah. That's why I run this shit. <laughs> that's why i'm in this industry dog as i fucking called it i knew what night of the week this movie would air bitch because i was a kid so james picks up the tape he fucking books it out the dad's like where are you going he doesn't say sarah's crying in her room and she hears someone say sarah and of course bitch it's deborah and she's wearing a full black I mean, this outfit is fitted. Like, I th- overall, I spent a lot of time on this podcast bullshitting about wardrobe, set design, uh, fonts. I love to talk about all that stuff. That's all something I have a hard on for. The wardrobe in this was fantastic. 10 out of 10. I'm just going to say that now. There wasn't a single outfit that I was like, she wouldn't wear that. Like even her like sex worker outfit was kind of like perfect like i would absolutely buy her as a high class escort so anyway um deborah is there with a big ass gun and she tells sarah that she bet she doesn't know that she was on that uh she bet she doesn't know that she was on that tape so she's like i'm on that tape bitch right up there with her dad and connie she did it as a favor for a valued customer she didn't do this for money. She's not a blackmailer. She's a businesswoman. And Connie cost her what it took 10 years to build. So is she having a threesome with Sarah's dad and Connie? Pro-
2: probably?
3: probably. Or is it like I don't a know.
2: not know? Uh, unclear. I think, um, I think this movie had some ambitions and... Maybe at one point in time, it was a two-hour movie that they trimmed down to 90 minutes. So it would uh, be a a made-for-TV movie as opposed to a theatrical feature.
1: Little do they know, it would be a four-hour podcast in the future. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So James is driving out of the neighborhood, and he spots Deborah's car on the side of the street. So he drives back to the house, and Sarah's dad is fixing himself a drink, which is so bold. Like, literally... This man is just like at his beverage cart making himself a drink after all of this has already happened when Earl enters and says, good afternoon, Mr. Dutton, and clocks him in the face. It's a comedy moment. So then James runs up to the house with his gun drawn and Deborah upstairs tells Sarah that she wants the tape. Sarah says she doesn't have it and Deborah shoots at her but hits the bedside lamp instead. And I do love that she has a little girl room still.
2: Yeah, she's she's clearly a daddy's girl, right?
1: Yeah, but like you would have thought like she's there to stay, so update it maybe even in high school. It had sort of a it, this is the second movie in a row where I've seen this, so I'm I'm taking note. But um Deborah shoots at her and says, "I don't think you quite get it." So right as James reaches the door, Earl spots him through the glass and shoots at him and the glass breaks. And this is a huge distraction. So Sarah takes this moment to rush downstairs and see what's going on. And Deborah shoots at her. Then there's this huge gunfight. We don't need to go through the choreography. It's a lot. And I'm not good at that. So let's just say that at the all- end of all of it, uh, Deborah is sh- shot. Earl shot is. in the face. Dem- yeah. Shot oh, right in, face. in
2: her pretty, pretty face.
1: In the face. Okay. I didn't see. I didn't see that. And then <laughs> Earl Left is. Left cheek knocked out and then Connie and James are left there to sort of have a, a moment of embrace, right? And there's this whole scene now. There's tons of cops, there's EMTs as there would be after a murder. I was thinking of what a pain in the ass that would be for Beverly Hills cops. Like they're just so not used to this. No. It's not their beat. Then um we see two cops are trying to contain Earl as they cuff him and you know, this isn't a slight on Earl, but like, I would think like being the heavyweight champion of the world that he is, it would take at least four to like, hold him back. Realistically.
2: Uh, I totally agree. I thought exactly the same thing. I have that note literally written down. Four <laughs> guys. He got
1: out of shape. Like, that's the bit is like the boxer just hasn't been like, he's not grinding anymore.
2: Yeah. But you would think that, um, even as a boxer, um, who's a little past his prime, but is about to be arrested and tossed in jail for the rest of his life, adrenaline would uh, give him that extra boost to last two minutes where we need four people to take him down versus two.
1: Yeah, it makes me scared, but I really can't wait, especially if they go the professional boxing route to see what the Paul brothers turn into at age 50. Like, I feel (laughs) like they'll, they'll very much be serving the community. If Hopefully, if both make it. I mean, I don't want anything to happen to either of them, but I think it'll be very interesting. So, Sarah's dad is on a gurney. We don't know what happens to him. I guess that's for the series. And we see Sarah's outside on the walkway crying and just sort of like spacing out into Beverly Hills, as you would. Like, I would zone at a wall for two days after this. And then James walks up (laughs) behind her and takes her hand and she leans back into him. He's not leaving her side yet. They're still together. And... Then we get the credits and it's a great credits sequence where they have stills from images earlier in the movie. So we can reflect upon that as we read the credits, which is, I think a missed thing for me.
2: It was, it was a nice touch. It was a great way to remember the highlights of this movie. And I will say the very last shot of this uh, one hour and 30 minute or so movie is of the Von Zernick-Settner Films logo. Um, They are a prodigious producer of TV movies, uh, including 2005's legendary Spring Break Shark Attack.
1: Wow. This was great. I fucking love this movie. I'm not going to lie. It was so hard to get into it the first time, dude. I was kind of bummed. Like, that was the half the first time, like, And sometimes that'll happen when I start to do the podcast, especially when I'm like going in completely dry on a movie and I'm like, Oh man, how am I going to do this? This is going to be hell. Um, but yeah, second viewing really held up for me and I've enjoyed listening to these clips today. This was such a fun movie and Mark, I've held you so long that literally we probably could listen to ever more together, but we won't. Um, I, and uh, do you have any final notes before we sign off? I know this episode should be airing either December 26th or January 2nd. So is there anything you want people to be looking out for that you're working on or anything like that?
2: Yes. Um, I would just say, uh, have a happy 2021 to everyone. And Malls, I love you. You are great. It is so great catching up with you. Thank you for having me on.
1: I, this took way too long go to bed thank you so much you guys all of Mark's information is going to be in the description of the show you're amazing thank you so much for a wild 2020 we'll talk to you next time bye